he said that uh, part of this book had been written under the influence of LSD. And I was like, that's impossible. Up to this point, I was like, LSD, it makes you crazy. Right. That changed everything for me. I, I realized I'd been uh, brainwashed in a certain way and came to believe only, you know, the fear-based side of things. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Good Trip Podcast. My name is Brent Pella. I will be your host on this wonderful journey. I'm a comedian, uh, content creator, actor, director, writer, and all types of other things that I could keep saying to boost my own ego. But instead, I will just say that I am so excited to bring this project into your life, and I am so grateful to you for receiving it and being down to rock with me. This podcast has been months in the making and features a series of conversations with business leaders, folks who work in medicine and the creative and entertainment space, each with their own personal experiences and points of view towards psychedelics, psychedelics as medicine, as therapy, and as a tool for growth. I myself have uh, been on my own evolution with plant medicines and, and psychedelic medicines um, with that intention of using psychedelics as a medicine for the past few years. And I am so excited to continue to grow and continue to learn. And that was really the motivation behind doing this limited series podcast was to have conversations with people I greatly admire and look up to and wanted to learn from and, and felt like they have something that maybe you could learn from too. Um, throughout the course of the next few weeks, I'll be dropping one episode per week on my YouTube channel as well as Spotify and iTunes. And the guests I have lined up are incredible. I am so, so excited, especially for the first guest of the series, Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin, if you don't know Rick Doblin, get to know Rick Doblin. If you know Rick Doblin, congratulations. You are on the right side of history. Rick Doblin is the founder and executive director of MAPS, M-A-P-S. That's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, where he has been advancing psychedelic medicines and therapy practices for decades. This is his life's work. And it is getting so much more momentum in today's day and age than maybe it used to. He is excited. I am excited. Everybody that works at MAPS is excited. And everybody that knows about the benefits and the the freeing power that psychedelics can have on your mind, your spirit, and your soul is ecstatic at the advancements and the progress that Rick Doblin has been leading in that field, uh, including, as of this recording, uh, the um, involvement in stage three trials with the FDA to get MDMA therapy cleared for use on folks with PTSD and other issues. Uh, I met up with Rick at an event down in San Diego for VETS, V-E-T-S, another fun acronym, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, uh, founded by Rick, uh, not founded by Rick, Rick is who I'm talking to, founded by Amber and Marcus Capone. A lot of names going through my mind right now. And uh, Amber and Marcus Capone are also guests on this podcast who will be featured a little later on. But this episode with Rick was awesome. We got to record right when Rick got to town down in San Diego. It was 10 p.m. He said he would have around an hour of time. And uh, we ended up rocking for over two hours together. It was quite a journey. And he's got just uh, uh, what seems to be an infinite well 
of knowledge and expertise and stories and research and facts and figures and anecdotes and and just a, a such a rich body of knowledge resides in this man's brain regarding this topic that I'm sure we could have gone for 30 hours and still just have only begun to scratch the surface of what he does and the importance of the work that MAPS does and, and how it's truly benefiting the world. So I was very grateful for Rick Doblin's time and, and I hope uh, you all can get something out of this conversation the way I did. But first, a super quick word from our sponsor, Doc Parsley's Sleep Remedy. Now, this is a product that was created by Dr. Kirk Parsley, a former Navy SEAL, who's actually on an episode of the Good Trip podcast coming out soon. And during that show, we talked a bit about his experience working with fellow veterans to get them off of prescription pills and off of sleeping pills that are so damaging to your body. And it really inspired him to create Sleep Remedy, which is a blend of different ingredients like magnesium, 5-HTP, L-tryptophan, and melatonin, all of which are meant to combine and mimic your body's natural progression into sleep. So if you have trouble sleeping at night, falling asleep, relaxing into sleep, or, or if you wake up feeling not fully energized and refreshed from a good night's sleep, I highly recommend checking out docparsley.com slash brents to get a discount on Doc Parsley's sleep remedy, which comes as either tea that you can have before bed or capsules if you're not into drinking liquids before bed. And I highly recommend it. I had a great night's sleep last night. You could tell because of how much I'm smiling right now. Do you see the smile? That's a good smile, baby. That's a good sleep smile. And that came from Doc Parsley's Sleep Remedy, which I have had such a good time integrating into my overall wellness routine. So again, docparsley.com slash Brent for a discount. The Good Trip Podcast also brought to you by Odyssey. Odyssey is a sparkling caffeinated beverage that I absolutely love. It comes in four flavors. It's got 85 milligrams of caffeine from green tea, and it's got 2,500 milligrams of mushrooms. Not magic mushrooms, but don't let that deter you because these mushrooms are meant to sharpen your focus, your creative edge, and your ability to get through your day and accomplish all your tasks with clean, smooth energy, no jitters, no anxiety, none of that. You can trust me because I have at least one of these every day. Odyssey is a sparkling mushroom elixir that you can find on Amazon and online at odysseyelixir.com and in various stores across the country, Albertsons, CVSs, um, and a couple others. You can go to odysseyelixir.com. There's a store locator, and you can also order online from their website. Highly, highly recommend you check out Odyssey Elixir. It is delicious. So without further ado, please enjoy this uninterrupted trip with Rick Doblin. I like to think, we're talking about the Grateful Dead, dude. I, I like to think... Uh, <laughs> My first experience with psychedelics was when I was two years old at the Grateful Dead ah. because I was at a Grateful Dead show. And if there's a, a, yeah. a music that's going to be psychedelic, it would be the Grateful Dead. You know, we took our son, uh, Eden, um, before he was one year old in the last tour mm -hmm. of uh, Jerry Garcia and the rest of the dead. So he also saw them from, from when he was just a few months old. He got blessed. He did. He got we, Jerry blessed. We, we sat way in the back so it wouldn't be too loud. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so you said yeah. we were outside you said you just spoke at walter reed yes that's huge it was a it felt like a big big breakthrough yeah yeah so did they invite you how did that yes, come about they, they did there's a military um psychiatrist bob goffman who's um expert in ptsd 
and has also been learning about psilocybin and ketamine and is um, part of a research site in Rockville, Maryland. That's just amazing, and they're doing five or six different studies. So Bob's been very focused on um, this new uh, federal task force to look at how to regulate psychedelics, and he's also been very involved in trying to bring us into the not just the Veterans Administration, but the Department of Defense. Yeah. And so he arranged for this talk. And he's also been through our training program and will be a therapist working with other uh, veterans. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and, and what... I, I, uh, there's a classic picture that I didn't... I Somehow I didn't notice that there was this American flag behind me on the on the stage, but in front is this uh, podium that does say Walter Reed, uh-huh. you know, military. And I... Um, for me, I was a draft resistor during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a conscientious objector because you have to be against all wars, and I'm not a pacifist. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so that left me no choice. I yeah, couldn't yeah. be. So you were the reason Nixon created the war on drugs. Well, in a, I learned from others. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, he started, it was handed down to me, and it was actually the Grateful Dead, in a sense, uh, more Ken Kesey that mm-hmm. really started me off on psychedelics. Awesome. Yeah. And, and what was what was some of the first like inspiration you remember having? Well, I was um, studying the other. I was taking Russian in high school. This is um, through the late 60s and 71, 70 and 71. And uh, a friend of mine um, gave me a book to read. And I loved it. I loved it. I was just, I gave it back to him. I, I thought it was amazing. And he said that uh, part of this book had been written under the influence of LSD. And I was like, that's impossible. Up to this point, I was like, LSD, it makes you crazy, chromosome damage. There's no way you can write a book on it. No, yeah. Nothing good, nothing, <laughs> you know, profound. Right. Yeah, and so my friend said, check it out. And it turned out it was Ken Kesey, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. And he had written part of it under the influence of LSD. And um, that changed everything for me. I, I realized I'd been uh, brainwashed in a certain way and came to believe only, you know, the fear-based side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How old were you then? At that point, I was uh, 17. Wow. Yeah, okay, so, so... Still young, not even... Yeah, but you could say I was deluded for a long time. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I, I was shy. I wasn't... I don't drink. My parents don't drink, really. Mm-hmm. I didn't, don't drink alcohol, so... I didn't really smoke pot in high school, hardly. One time, even. Just once. Yeah, I didn't and, smoke till I was 18. Hmm. Yeah. Same. What was your original? Uh, um, my original reason was that my mom scared me. Mm. She terrified me. She mm. just said weed. She just said, "Don't do it. It's terrible. Like, you'll be in trouble. I guess you please don't do it." Da 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 da. Wait, this is the same. Uh, the same. That yeah, took you yeah. To I the think dead she show? was. I think <laughs> weed. Her child smoking weed. Uh, I think that's where she got to be overprotective because she let me do <laughs> pretty much anything else. I would Does she party. St- I, would I go bet out, you. I did would, she have a problem with it? Um, she get, I don't um, think she had dependent a on it, it or I, not that I know of, but I do know she smoked a lot. And then I think maybe she got really career. I'm sure this conversation will made, motivate a new conversation, mom, which is great. <laughs> We're opening up all the doors here, Rick. This is coming out you to know? your family is the right. first step. It's wild mom. It's the most, we need you to know, talk. okay. Yeah. Um, there, there's a t-shirt by the way. There's a group of uh, students for a sensible drug policy. Oh, that's way better. These colleges all, all over the place. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, but wow. their T-shirt um, 
that is one of my favorite t-shirts it says um have you spoken to your parents yet about drugs <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny yeah. what yeah what yeah, the like students sen- stu- students for a sensible drug policy students for a sensible drug Th- policy they're all over all over the world actually that's uh, incredible on, on have campuses. you spoken to your parents about drugs yeah this idea of coming out we need to like yeah, educate people I mean, in, who in have high been school, miseducated. I, I played basketball. I was a sports guy. So uh. that was another part of it. You know, I never saw any of my favorite athletes smoke. Mm. And my mom said it would mess up your lungs. And that was really the essence of why I didn't smoke. It wasn't the fear of getting in trouble or getting grounded. It was, oh. it was this like this theory that it was me equating smoking weed to smoking cigarettes. Mm. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. in mainstream, you know, what we're being taught in school that your brain is a fried egg after one hit of weed, yeah. you know? And, uh, and so that like got kind of buried deep inside me until my early twenties, really. Well, this idea that, uh, you inhale something, it's like cigarette smoke, which gives you lung cancer. And why, why should it be any different for, for smoking pot or cannabis? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is different and it's different because the cannabinoids a lot of them have anti-tumor properties and it's also not other additives and things that are in tobacco but it's pretty clear now um from even nida funded uh, national Institute on drug abuse funded mm-hmm. researchers and even on the nida website that used to scare people about marijuana and lung cancer now says there's no evidence that it does cause lung cancer wow and it's something where uh, Dr. Donald Tashkin at UCLA has done decades and decades of research. He was originally for the prohibition of marijuana, mm-hmm. but he, he did the work on the on the lung function and ended up um, realizing that both in large scale population studies, comparative people who smoke and people who don't smoke through Kaiser and through just really big population and through direct evidence. Um, so yeah, if she scared you about uh, <laughs> lung cancer, <laughs> now we got to talk. Mom. No, she said she would do mushrooms with me soon, so oh, she's uh, oh. she's flipped. Yeah, ha- have you uh, moved uh, through the MDMA space yet? Not yet. Them? I think we're gonna. I think we need to uh, overcome our mushroom mountain together. Mm. I will. I will lead her down the path gracefully, mm. and then we will potentially approach others but wow how, you know. how is it that you're thinking mushrooms are the next step uh cool. my own personal experience yeah. uh, motivates me to uh-huh. try and spread the word and spread at least my experience i'm yeah. still fairly new comparatively i mean i i am still evolving with trying yeah. different yeah. uh plants as medicines um microdosing i'm, I'm on a microdose protocol right now for I, synthetics or no no it's a uh, um, it's all plants yeah yeah it's it's psilocybin with uh i think there's other mushroom compounds mixed in reishi lion's mane mm. those types uh-huh. of things yeah um but yeah i, I think uh, you know lsd you, ever lsd i am a fan okay so i'm just fan. trying to talk about the synthetic natural kind of yeah 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 but, okay so lsd but lsd i'm a fan yeah so i'll dip into that side of things sure you know, <laughs> hey, mama, it doesn't hurt his brain. <laughs> it doesn't hurt my brain. It doesn't. Look at how good I'm doing. I'm doing great. I'm, do, I'm speaking full sentences. I might not write a book. You know, there was this um, Oprah, um, had this woman who supposedly had holes in her brain from taking MDMA like uh-huh. 20 years ago. Yeah. Incredible brain scan holes. Very scary, you know, but the woman was there 
talking and laughing and walking and choking <laughs> and she looked totally fine but she had this you know wounded uh imagery which was graphically manipulated of and completely fake it, well is it, isn't it i mean that was that was also a, 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 apart from your brain bubbling like an egg your brain developing like tunnel systems in it like holes just sinkholes were going to pop right. up that was another thing that we were just taught and we were told over and over yeah. again my the one of my worst trips ever though was this idea that um my like fiber optic cables you know mm -hmm. just just incredible you know the brain is like this massive fiber optic cables um and that i was like um having some emotional difficulties and i was resisting and i was like making a kink in this fiber optic cables that and these cables weren't quite matching up this incredible mismatch and i that, that's that was, insane. That was scary. <laughs> what's, what's the message? What's the deeper the message? The message was, I think, that I that I was blocking the flow. Mm. The, you know, my fears were blocking the flow, mm -hmm. and that um, you know, if I somehow could have um, let go more into it, you know, yeah. and and that I didn't permanently damage. The, you know, I, I didn't probably make kinks, but but I think it was um, a good um, metaphor. For what? what was happening. I, another time earlier in my tripping was that um, I got confused. I felt so resistance again that I somehow thought that I was like a light bulb heating up my brain so much that I was like burning it out. And that um, there was just then this, um, I had this uh, nasal drip in the back. I know, and I, I thought it was like for a moment, like my brain melting. It's <laughs> just like. That I was so good at, uh, at, at resisting, and it was what, just like what drug were you on for no, this? That was that was LSD. That okay. was a, a large dose of LSD. Yeah, and I just I couldn't. Uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't go further. I was, you know, what would have been great is mm -hmm. if I would have had like half a dose of MDMA. In addition. In addition, yeah. that that would have been great, and also ideally, um, a therapist or somebody. This was my friends and I were trying it on our own, and. At party yeah, and stuff, we didn't yeah. have much of this knowledge of how it could be used. Yeah. Do you um, do you find a, a difference uh, when people say drugs versus medicine? Do you does that ever come up? Like, oh yeah, we have to be really careful of the kind of framing for yeah, people. Yeah. Um, th that's why for the um, brand name of MDMA that we have to come up with, we're going to try to stay away from things like ecstasy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ecstasy, what else? Uh, joy, we call this one. Ab empathy. Uh, just even, or... absolute pleasure. This is the absolute pleasure pill. Um, I can share a name that was uh, we really like but was rejected. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Path. In. In Path. Wow. That's kind of... It's about what the drug does, mm -hmm. what, what the experience, what the medicine does. Um, I don't have such a negative connotation with drugs, but I, I think also people know drug story that there's, that, so it's, that they, it's more like legal or illegal. Right. More than drugs or medicine, I think. Right. Um, now you said uh, a brand name for MDMA. Yeah. <laughs> that, so... Are we brand? We're going to brand MDMA to so that it doesn't have to be just letters. It can be something that speaks more to the purpose and the use of of it. So that it can be a prescription pharmaceutical product. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and so. 
and MDMA mm. doesn't work just because it's like it does it actually need like a brand name to it? Um, yes, when, when you um, yeah, it's hard to like um, trademark or copyright MDMA. Yeah, because you it's know, just so and you need to distinguish what, what is your product from yeah. So you can't like sometimes call something just water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, Aquafina. It's much better. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's uh, and five times the price. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. That's wild. So, how, so are there any other front runners? How are you guys going to decide on a brand name? Well, it's amazing how difficult it is because there is a whole uh, computer programs that are set up to look for phonetic similarities with existing approved medications. And if it's, I think it's 72% or something like that, more similar, then they knock it out. Wow. Yeah. So that, and then if it's similar to other things that have already been trademarked or patented or, or, I mean, or trademarked or copyright. So it's very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're still, um, struggling to yeah. find the, the name and and the reason that we're struggling is because we just got the last data point in our second phase three study last week mm. meaning that um, we'll know in a month or two if it was um, successful um, which there's a good chance that it was very good chance then we prepare an application to the FDA mm -hmm. so you need that name yeah. Rick, you've been going for 30 years. You can't get hung up for another 30 on a name. Well, on the other hand, I don't want to choose a name too soon either. Okay. You know, because yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like a, a mantra. It's like so, there's something, if we can get the magic one. Sure. Um, that just, that one of my favorites, uh, there's a drug modafinil, if you know this, is for mm. um, jet lag or shift work, but it's also f uh, approved for narcolepsy. So it, it's basically a non-amphetamine alert drug mm -hmm. that has, in many places, been adopted. Um, sometimes even in uh, for pilots, mm -hmm. um, and it's called Provigil. Oh yeah, I've heard of Provigil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's the the kind oh, of name. Oh, that's a cool name. Pro Vigil. Oh, wow. Yes, it's, it's that's so good. It's, it's just like so. Oh, like, yes, that's I so good. It. And it's exactly. And it's. I never a, even thought of that. Or Claritin. The, yes, the, some that, of these is are that just another one. Yeah, right. yeah, that's a good. Wow. Yes, yes, it's just, it's like a mantra. It's like yeah, a yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, like. Yeah. A, so we, we just um, you can have some that sound too pharmaceutical. It's it's hard to find one. Yeah, yeah. Pro Vigil is the model. Provisional is that great. kind of thing mm -hmm. that says it what it does. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay, if I think of any good ones, I'll let you know. Yeah, or maybe I'll look them up first to save you the step. Well, there, you need all these one. special computers. You need, yeah, oh, you know, that's programs. Crazy. That's and, wild. I can't be doing all that. Yeah, so we're <laughs> hoping. This is now saying that we know for sure that it'll be approved, but that um, yeah. we have to plan for all options. Yeah, call in the best. Call in the best possible outcome. Yeah. Now you were you said you were seventeen when you read that book, and that was your kind of moment of turning a one eighty and and mm -hmm. coming to a realization. What was your first step toward actually acting on some of those realizations you were having? 
Well, the first was that I was realizing that um, the psyche, that that um, that the prob there, that there were all sorts of uh, problems and challenges and threats, you know, but that they came a lot of them came down to um, a mindset of um, separateness or how we identified ourselves in in the different tribal ways or so but if we could have this more collective sense a deeper sense um, that would give us I think more connection and compassion so that was the kind of um, thing I'd been thinking about um, it's like I took a class in Jung in high school mm -hmm. and Jungian psychology and um, was reading a lot um, but it wasn't really until um, college. So my first thought was to go to a, this experimental college where I would be free to go in all these different directions. Where the, the, What they said about new college, and uh, it's the Honors College of the State of Florida now, but in the, um, that the student's curiosity is the most important thing. Mm. And that they didn't want to put anything, like we were talking about UC Santa Cruz, that they didn't want to put anything in the way of that. So there was no distribution requirements. That was one of the big things is that you could just, you know, take whatever you wanted. You, you didn't, you could have, you didn't have to major in anything. You could just have a general studies. Oh, that sounds great. If you want to major, yeah. then there was no grades. And so it was a free space. I knew I wanted to go there and it's that in that free space, I did not really anticipate, but I should have kind of known that there was a strong psychedelic culture oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so funny they probably looked at you like wait you don't you didn't come uh, here because i was like what? where i have landed in paradise <laughs> I that's think, so cool uh, it was um, a nudist colony at the pool so in the in, college in florida it was outdoors it was outdoors florida nudist colony i was just super shy guy in high school the the nudist colony was, was the pool. a part of the, the students school? well no the, the we didn't have to wear clothes at the pool Oh. And a lot of people didn't. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you did. Big Olympic. No, I didn't. Oh, no, good. No, no, That's great. I, 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 I'm proud to say that um, my um, when I finally um, found my way to having a girlfriend, she was a nude lifeguard, and I would be like drowning. <laughs> <laughs> and that helped. Help. <laughs> That's insane. That's so fun. The campus police said that their job was to protect us from the real police. <laughs> That's wow. That's wild. Yeah, that's really I felt cool. Like such a bubble. We talk yeah. about bubbles. This was the, like, the it doesn't a even bubble sound like par excellence. I mean, that sounds like. I think it was a very rare moment in time. And How just long an does a place like bubble. that last? Well, now no it's, it's funded primarily by the state of Florida. It's the Honors College of the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. So the state of Florida is pretty conservative. Yeah, these yeah, days. yeah. So there's um, a little bit of pressure not to have like the all night parties sure no more nudity uh, by the pool no more nudity okay. by the Damn. pool a lot, you, a lot of things have disappeared do you, a, do you know yeah. around like when things started disappearing oh yeah oh yeah yeah i yeah. was the first person arrested for swimming naked in the pool when no I, way when, yeah a friend of mine so ed light and i we were um, swimming laps two guys just swimming laps naked around midnight would hopped over the fence uh-huh and the the police came and they had just merged with the state and it was <sighs> like okay you know state rules and stuff your time and, is done uh, yeah and we're just like swimming laps naked under the 
stars phenomenal you sure. know and they, they what was interesting is that um we got arrested and they wanted to make a big point of it so they called in the real police mm-hmm. the campus police called, called in the real police the ones who were supposed to be, be protecting you from them yes they they and then um and there's students that work at the um and work study things work answering the phones and things at the cop shop we called it mm-hmm. So we always had a good idea what they were doing, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but um, the, the, it was a friend of mine, so he had to call the police, the real police, to take us away, uh. and then as soon as his shift was over, he came and bailed us out. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Bell, it was fantastic. Steve. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. That's funny, man. <laughs> so were some of your first... Um... <laughs> That's so crazy that a college like that existed. I mean, yeah. what did you major in? Like, um, I majored blunt rolling. Well, I That's dropped wild. out in the summer of my first year, in the the not in not the summer in the second semester really mm-hmm. of, the, of the first year. I dropped out for ten years. <laughs> you dropped out for ten years. Yeah, and then you went back to the same place. Had it changed by the time you got back? Um, it had merged with the state, and by then, yeah, yeah. it was even deeper. Yeah, but, but it was still a lot of the same flavor, and I had. Mm. Um, spent those 10 years preparing to do direct work with psychedelics. This was more, I, I, I had to I dropped out because I wanted to focus my life on psychedelics, but I was um, psychologically not prepared for that. Mm-hmm. I was just 18 years old. Yeah. And, so you, you wanted to focus, you knew by that time that you wanted to focus on psychedelics and you also recognized that that college environment wasn't going to be the best spot for you to just be free to pursue them however well, you want? Well, I, I did realize it was the best spot for me to be free if I just didn't have to be in school. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. If I could just yeah. hang if out just with be my naked. friends. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. Okay. <laughs> and I kind of managed yeah. to, to, to realize to, to get back. I dropped out just for, for, for 10 years, but after a year, um, I went back. I, I, I You were... Uh, you know, I was involved also in um, sports in high school mm-hmm. with in handball. Handball. Uh, yeah, our, our high school had the handball courts. Wow, our, our high school didn't have handball. Yeah, that's awesome. This was and and most high schools did. Is that one on one? That's a one on one sport. Yeah, you can do doubles. Too, yeah, or it's it's one on one mostly. Yeah, you know, but also doubles and um, it was in the boys' locker room too. The so, handball court. The was? handball courts. Two of them. Yeah. Wow. Um, we had like 3,800 people in our high school. So it was really big. Um, And um, I didn't feel comfortable being um, in a team sports. I felt wary of groups and I I called it the tyranny of the coach. You know, I wanted my freedom, but, and so handball was great because it was um, only intramural and because other schools didn't have it, but it had the people that were the best athletes in the off season would play because it was such a good workout and because it was ambidextrous. You had to kind of use right. both, both sides of your hand. And so, um, yeah, I got to really be um, very good. I got finally, my senior year, I got to be the best in the school. Did girls like handball players? Um, I was too shy to even talk to a girl yeah. to find out. Were any handball I, players I like charismatic? <laughs> I mean, you are, but like, some, like some I'm of think, us. trying to think of handball players walking around like a football jock. Sounds um, it, it is a more one-on-one, smaller, not a big stadium watching. Would people but, show but up to watch were, the games? There are some um, the matches. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but just it's, it's in sport. the boys. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so once I dropped out of school and I realized that I needed to be um, grounded, and the school just had this uh, big swimming pool, but it didn't have a lot of athletic facilities. So I asked my parents if I could, um, if they would buy the materials for a handball court, and I would build it, and I would donate it to the school, and they would support me, and I would go back, and um, I'd be at school with my friends, but I wouldn't be in study. I would have no responsibilities, <laughs> but, but I would be building this handball court as a present, and it would be a way for me to get kind of grounded. Yeah. And my parents were like, Sounds good. Get him on college campus. Step in the right direction. Um, so I, I did that, and um, I spent about a year building this kind of perfect uh, plane. You know, it's because the wow. it's a yeah. You don't want the ball to bounce in the wrong way, and mm-hmm. I just was extremely precise, meditative, almost kind of. Yeah. And I yeah I had a tremendous time building this. Did you do it all yourself? Um, I tried to. Um, some things I needed help with the. Uh, there was a partial roof, so I needed help carrying up the joists. But um, and were, were you starting to experiment more with psychedelics around that time? Too? This, this was where I had away? experimented a lot, and yeah. I was. This was where I was experimenting. Um, yeah, fair amount. Like I spent my twenty-first birthday by myself doing LSD, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that was an incredible ex- experience. How, how much LSD do you think you did on your twenty-first birthday? Well. Uh, around 250 micrograms. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, th- that was kind of the standard dose. Yeah. Um, you would have periods of hours. So it's the opposite of microdosing. Yeah. I mean, and it's not the opposite. You know, you could do 500 to 600 micrograms, mm-hmm. you know, 1,000 micrograms. I mean, at some point it doesn't matter. You, you've sort of disabled the parts of your brain you're going to disable or and right. empowered the parts. And it's, at some point, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it doesn't really makes sense yeah <laughs> once you hit a certain <laughs> spot it's just that now you're wasted yeah yeah the um that 10-year period mm. um i mean that sounds like that was your that was your free run that was your what what did you do for those 10 years well this idea that um building things was getting me healthier and more grounded mm-hmm. from the handball court led me um, to start trying to think about um, building houses. My parents had had a house built by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's that I had grown up in, this incredible house. Um, and so I, and I was going to inherit a certain amount of money that would be um, just enough to build a house, um, or so I thought. I actually um, um, went over budget. <laughs> 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 didn't finish the house for a long time. I lived in it unfinished. Um, but it was a very interesting house, and we still have it. My wife and I haven't run it out. It's kind of a house to trip in. Oh, cool. But a, but a family house. Is it's, it decorated? It's a family house. Like kind of psychedelic? Um, it's more um, cedar oh, with okay. stained glass so earthy. and earthy uh, yeah, granite yeah. walls and kind of angles in the walls and stories. Yeah. and um, Like the master bedroom has got... Um, the structure of it is um, big beams, and then the uh, decking on top of it can be angled in different ways. So it's it forms um, an infinity, oh, and in whoa. the middle of it is a big skylight. So that whoa. I had uh, in the master bedroom. There's like, uh, did you say your wife rents it out? Well, my wife and I own it, and we you, rent it out. And we, where we, is it? In, in Sarasota, Florida. Okay, I'm going to get that info from you it's, after this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, yeah. Th- there was actually uh, just an article. There's a magazine called Dwell. 
uh-huh. about houses, and they did a feature on the house. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay, so you're built. So you're building yeah. stuff. Yeah. And what what where's the connection between that and the psychedelic journey that well, you were going? Well, that this was I was um, building my um, capacity to handle. Um, emotions to handle psychedelics to handle society um, so it, it felt that there was uh, that I knew I would go back to school at some point once I could figure out how to do it with actually the psychedelics first so I would be tripping now and then um, sometimes with smaller doses sometimes with larger doses but I would be trying to um, uh, just balance myself out you know I, I felt that way overdeveloped in my mind intellectually, way underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually, way off balance. And the world was that way and I was that way. Um, And so it was a process of, um, even though my house, as I said, I didn't finish it because I wasn't so good at budgeting. (laughs) Um, The, um, some people wanted me to um, build for them. And uh, I had a, a, my girlfriend who was great, um, sadly is no longer alive, but, um, she, um, grew up, um, Southern, um, Catholic girl, um, like this Northern liberal, um, Jewish guy and her uh, parent, her father in particular wasn't so thrilled with me, mm-hmm. but he taught a class in, um, to contractors about how to pass the contractor's exam. And I thought, okay, just built this handbook for it. I think maybe I'd like to build a house. I'll see this. I'll, I'll sort of run this money through me and see what it means. What what yeah. is what is this? What can I do with it? I'll I'll build this house. I'll live in it for a year or so. It'll be a house, a family house, but also a house to trip in. I'll, I'll try to think more like that. And so the um, idea we hatched that um, I could ask him um, or she could ask her father to let me take this class for free. And uh, that he would agree because we knew he would think I would fail and then he would show that I wasn't worthy of his daughter <laughs> and I would get the class for free and I would show that I would pass and, uh, and that I, I would uh, and that you were worthy. a real man. Yeah. I was a real man. Yeah. And uh, I, I managed to get the lowest possible score you could get and still pass. <laughs> <laughs> but he's had to pass you. I did. What, what, what was his reaction to that? Um, I think he was, you know, you know, it, it slowed him down a bit, you know, sure, it, it, sure. Was, it, was <laughs> <laughs> it was good. And so then I had a license and yeah. then I was a contractor. <laughs> I was the youngest and dumbest contractor in Florida. That's crazy. How old are you at this time? You're early twenties. At, at this time I'm 20. Yeah, yeah. Because there was one County Manatee County that so wanted development that mm-hmm. they didn't have a residency requirement they didn't have an age requirement you didn't have to have prior work experience yeah you could just apply to take the test and so i'm like oh. and then other counties give you reciprocity so yeah. that then you yeah because it's so did, that, the did test, that contracting work give you the freedom to continue to do your own research on the side was it like a 50 50 split um time? i would say it was more doing the um building you know, and, and it was, and my research was more just trying to um, figure out the world, get balanced, think about. Um, I read lots and lots and lots of books about about psychedelics and psychotherapy, and I um, would sometimes um, sit for friends or, or something. And but I was um, through this time just gathering strength, and then finally I yeah. built a um, 
house for one of the professors at New College. And um, I thought, um, maybe now I think I can go back to school and put um, psychedelics as, uh, so I would, my major would be um, transpersonal psychology and psychedelic uh, therapy and research. Wow. Yeah, and so my very first semester that I finally went back after 10 years, I was so lucky. There was a workshop at Esalen in Big Sur by Stan and Christina Groff, who I'd been with for a workshop 10 years before, mm -hmm. but this is where I was like, I had to get more ready. So it took me this whole decade of building houses. And so then I'm finally, I'm finally back in school. I'm with him, um, with uh, Stan and Christina, and um, designing this curriculum for you know and and thinking about what will I do for the next four years and uh, there was also a fellow Ed Barker who had been uh, in charge of a PhD program and at Harvard in psychology and social change and he had been a psychotherapist as well and <clears throat> politician he was in charge of training for the Peace Corps he'd retired in Sarasota and he was uh, permitted to teach at New College so every semester he was like my therapist and my teacher for a class wow. and he was super uh, paid for separately by my parents uh -huh. and he was just very interested in psychedelics and psychotherapy and oh that's so cool so um uh, was that rare to find people it, that were also interested it, it, around that it, time it was yeah did you did it, you try to like start gravitating toward a team to get some support at least yeah and there was still a strong culture and and we had yeah. um particularly at, at esalen and so I, I had uh yeah been able to um finally get back in 1982 uh, into this academic with psychedelics first i was like merged in the system and and within a couple of weeks is when i heard about uh this new drug called adam which was adam, adam. and it was um made you um feel love feel connection feel self-acceptance uh, be more open better listener Mm -hmm. um, and that um, it had also uh, unfortunately escaped from these therapeutic circles where it had been used for about half a million doses in the prior seven years or something mm -hmm. and it had become ecstasy and mm -hmm. it was being used as a party setting so that it was going to be criminalized sometime eventually Yeah, this underground quiet thing Um. Yeah, so I started school at the exact moment within weeks that I learned about MDMA. And I thought, I learned about LSD after the backlash. Now I'm learning about MDMA before the backlash. Right before, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so now getting I those years early, yeah. yeah. Matt, when, what year was MAPS? That was, uh, MAPS eight, was 86. 86, yeah. yeah. So around 82 was the Atom, which is MDMA, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and then MDMA ended up being the first push that maps did well yes yeah. so, so in 84 <clears throat> i was um back to esalen working with stan groff and and christina on breath work and also they had a month-long workshop on the spiritual emergence network mm. and um, a lot of times people will have crises and it it it's something's not fitting in their life but it can be a crisis of growth it can end up with um, good or it can be pathologized and in different ways when people have these kind of, so it's the spiritual emergence if you support it right and um, I'd study that and after I was back at school for only four or five days um, I was asked by a friend whose um, girlfriend had taken MDMA and had 
uh, trauma come up and was just in a terrible place um, and had been in and out of an institution after the MDMA experience. The MDMA experience had made her worse. It had she'd, for, she'd been in turmoil before. It had been kind of a brutal situation, and uh, but she found a new balance under MDMA, not, not in a therapeutic setting. It came to the surface and and checked herself into a hospital to not kill herself. It was so powerful. Wow. Got out of the hospital and after five or six days and was even more interested in killing herself because they didn't help her and gave her the same kind of medications, didn't do anything good before. And so anyway, I, I spoke to her and uh, we agreed that uh, she wouldn't kill herself while we would work together if we would work together. And I had just come from this training and even though I didn't feel qualified, I'd said that don't know what else to do or doesn't know what other options so anyway it, it helped her get over her PTSD wow so that was 84 and what because that sounds like such a traumatic thing that she was going through it was terrible so what um, saying that it helped her get through her PTSD what was like that path what, what did that look like was it multiple sessions over the course of a year or was it kind of continued uh, sessions it was two sessions over um, about three weeks, about you know, two to three weeks. The first one was MDMA, and then the second one was an LSD-MDMA combination. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it helped in, in a way to bring um, the, the core fears, like um, the person had said that if she ever told the story, he would kill her. And this was like a long way away and years before, but it still was mm -hmm. kind of freeing to be able to talk about it. Wow. You know, um, That's incredible. Yeah. So that was 84. Yeah. And then in 84, um, shortly after, and that was in the house that oh, I cool. described yeah. that I'd built trip for house. tripping. That yeah, yeah. That's where the first experience was. <laughs> yeah. That was in the bedroom with the infinity and the sky. Wow. Up above yeah. That sounds healing. Yeah, it does. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and so that's later that summer, though, the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA. And that's wow. where a group of people had um, prepared for this for years, and mm -hmm. this was the nonprofit I'd started before MAPS, um, Earth Metabolic Design Lab, um, connected with Buckminster Fuller. A friend of mine, John Lambie, had it, but he hadn't really been using it for a while, this nonprofit structure, and it was about alternative energy, and I was like, okay, you know, psychedelics are alternative energy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can see that. Yeah, uh -huh. it's, it's the broader view of the mission. Mm -hmm. So I took over this, uh, Elise Hagar and Debbie Harlow and I, and, and organized the support and, you know, sponsored a uh, uh, lawsuit against the DEA. Awesome. Which we uh, in the, we were winning, and it freaked out the DEA. Yeah. And so they, they um, also started trying to criminalize MDMA internationally. And then also, um, we were winning in the course of public opinion. We'd given MDMA to rabbis and monks and professors at Harvard Medical School. and That's awesome. People, well, how people, do you get it to a rabbi and a monk? Well, I guess the rabbi the, the is monk, here, um, is in a monastery. Yeah. You have to you know meet them somewhere. <laughs> yeah. How do you even yeah. introduce MDMA well, to a monk? Well, I this was through Stan Groff, through Esalen, through this workshop. Brother David Steindoras was at a monastery not far from Esalen, mm -hmm. and he came to talk to 
this uh, workshop for a couple of days as one of the guest uh, professors, teachers, and he was from a monastery nearby. That's um, amazing. Yeah, and, and I would come back more and more for meetings, planning meetings about mm -hmm. how to defend MDMA and also workshops. Did you, were you met with any resistance from groups like that who already held such high spiritual beliefs and had such like high spiritual backgrounds? When I think of a mm. monk, I think of, I mean. Oh, okay. So, you know. um, no. So, um, I actually at one point got called before the um, Father Bruno, who was in charge of this entire monastery, because mm. there were several monks that were doing MDMA. And he basically was like, wondering what are my monks doing with your drugs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I was able to explain why in a convincing manner that he was fine, that these were tools to enhance meditation. These are tools mm. to enhance therapy. They're not used all the time. They're tools to get a deeper, uh, insight, a deeper experience, a deeper knowledge. Um, of what's possible and then you can have a direction and you can move in that direction without the drug this is true both for meditation and also for therapy mm -hmm. and the, the idea is here is to help people be um, capable of processing emotions and, and information in ways similar to when they're on MDMA that it's something that you take back it helps you with issues in the past, but it also helps build your capacity to deal with ongoing or new traumas, um, to take them in and to, uh, yeah, not dissociate or to, to, uh, to the extent you can not do that. And, um, yeah, so it's about, um, changing your baseline without drugs. Yeah. So, so that when, and also, by this point, when I had to defend myself with Father Bruto, um, I had made a connection with the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. Wow. His name was Robert Mueller. And in 83, he wrote this book that um, I read, and it was called New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. And he was like the mystic at the UN. Mm -hmm. And he had been there. He'd been a, a French resistance fighter in World War II. He'd been at the UN for like almost 40 years, uh, he helped start the uh, United Nations University for Peace in Costa Rica. And so the book was this theory of change that I'd had when I was 18, this idea that the sense of connection, that if you are identifying deeper than your tribe in ways, that we'll still have all these conflicts, but that you can see the commonality, you'll be less willing to dehumanize and to prejudice and mm -hmm. racism and, and all of this or fundamentalism and, and all these things so what when he, the book had a picture of the earth from space which is his sort of concept and he said that the United Nations is for conflicts between um, countries but a lot of those conflicts are religious based and if we can just have this more global sense we don't need to be killing each other for these religious differences because um, if you move away from there's one right religion and there's um, you know two that there's this cosmic story that we're all involved in and that 
the religions are like languages to express the same kind of how we're connected or what we do with each other. Um, and there's different ways and certain religions are prohibit this or that. And certain seem more, um, restrictive than others mm -hmm. and things, but, the, but that they come from the same place that we should be able to kind of collaborate. So that's what this book was saying. And so I wrote him a letter and I said, um, I, I agree with your book, but you don't mention psychedelics and psychedelics are a tool to help us have this experience or something similar. You could say it's not even genuine, but it's similar enough that we can learn from it. And I talked to him about the Good Friday experiment and the scientific study of psychedelics and spirituality. And I mentioned MDMA being um, legal and this therapeutic potential. And, um, and he wrote me back. He wrote me back and he gave me a list of monks and rabbis and, and other religious uh, wow. people. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was kind of like th they'd be interested in hearing from you. I kind of heard, you know, they'd be interested in trying this MDMA. And so yeah. I sent it to people. I met the most incredible people. They yeah. would report back to him. And so when I had to go to Father Bruno, I was like, well, okay, so the Assistant Secretary General. And not only that, but the Good Friday experiment which was the key experiment that Timothy Leary did with Walter Pankey. His this student, this and, isn't the Concord... The Concord prison, prison experiment was around the same time. Okay. So the Good Friday experiment is in 1962. Okay. And Timothy Leary is the faculty sponsor. Um, Walter Pankey is doing the project. He's a minister and a doctor, and he's getting a PhD. And um, the study was at uh, Boston University chapels where it took place. Um, it was, so it was like a Good Friday service, 20 people, 10 attendees, um, experts in religion and philosophy of religion. And, but the minister who let them do that is uh, Reverend Howard Thurman, who's this incredible African-American minister, super, like what an order. Just, mm -hmm. But more importantly, he'd studied with Gandhi. Well, and he was Martin Luther King's um, mentor at Boston University where Martin Luther King got a PhD. Mm -hmm. And so he helped Howard Thurman and helped introduce nonviolence into the U.S. civil rights movement. Wow. And had a strong interest in the political implications of the spiritual experience. And then he was willing to let the Good Friday experiment take place in the basement chapel while he was doing a regular Good Friday service for everybody else. Wow. So describe the Good Friday experiment for um, people for people who don't know. So people have probably heard about um, uh, a band called The Doors, mm -hmm. you know, based on a book by Aldous Huxley, Do Doors of Perception, based on a mescaline experience that he had, uh, published in the late 50s. And so there was a lot of interest now. Also, um, Life magazine, like the top magazine uh, of, just like the um, when there weren't so many um, outlets, so you know they they really introduced into American culture this the discovery of psychedelic mushrooms, um, and so there was just this in the air this idea of these psychedelics that are kind of newly discovered. NLSD is being used more and more, and people are having range of experiences. This idea that something uh, seems like um, 
mystical, spiritual. People have talked about it for thousands of years, some parts of the experience, particularly the classic psychedelics like LSD and, and psilocybin, and that it would be worth studying um, whether they really could facilitate a, a mystical experience. So, the, so Walter Pankey, first off, had to devise a questionnaire. What is a mystical experience? How do you measure it? What, what's more of it? What's less of it? Mm-hmm. Um, and the mystical experience questionnaire that's used today in the LSD psilocybin research at Hopkins at NYU and that MAPS uses in our MDMA research is only a very slightly modified version of what Walter Vanke developed for the Good Friday experiment. He spent a year trying to come up with this different categories of um, unity, uh, a sense of uh, the sacred, uh, mm. a sense of the transcendence of time and space, a deeply felt positive mood, uh, a sense of uh, ineffability that is beyond words. You can't really put it into words. That it's something deeper than that, and the sense of um, timelessness and, and yeah, in- incredible. So th- yeah. th- this. Um, Experiment took religiously inclined people from the um, Andover Newton Theological School in a religious setting, Good Friday, and uh, gave them either psilocybin or a placebo, um, nicotinic acid, which they didn't know, which gives you a flush. Mm-hmm. So um, everybody had something happen. Right. Body, uh, t- body temperature goes up slightly or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you take enough, yeah, you get a red flush and sure. you know, tingle. Yeah. So. Um, what they discovered or what they found was that nine out of the 20 people had a mystical experience full or or significantly in that direction, nine out of the 20 and eight out of those nine had the psilocybin. Wow. And, and they discovered that people reported long-term benefits after a bunch of months. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, Walter Pankey died. He, he became one of the top LSD researchers. He worked at Hopkins with, with Stan Groff and did uh, incredible work. Um, but he died mysteriously in a scuba diving accident in 1971, and his body was never found. And it was Whoa. a big tragedy for the whole community. Yeah. Know, he was like one. Yeah. Um, I wonder what happened and, mysteriously. Well, it's the way where, like, he just, like, melted into the ocean of being. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it was a cool mystery uh, then. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't foul play. Maybe he. No, no, it wasn't foul play. No, no, no. It's just (laughs) something. You say somebody mysteriously disappeared. Oh, I didn't mean to. Yeah. I shouldn't have said it like that. No, no. Maybe that's just me watching too many horror movies lately. But what that meant was in the 80s when I finally went back to school and I had to do a senior thesis and all psychedelic research was blocked. And you couldn't give drugs to anybody, couldn't get permission. I thought, well, there is something I can do, which is a long-term follow-up study to the Good Friday experiment. And Walter Pankey, who did it, would have done it if he was still alive, but he wasn't, and nobody else thought to do it. So I thought, okay, I can do a 25-year follow-up study, and that's the most important thing in any case from this mystical experience is, is it durable? Does it last? What do people think over time? Do they have other mystical experiences? So... Um, the the theory is called by your by the fruits shall ye know it, <laughs> you know. So what is the the long term? What is the fruits of the experience? Yeah, yeah. Which you get. So it was really I was building on a phenomenal classic study of psychedelics, 
in finding a way, an easy way, just by asking questions uh, of um, where they're all at now. That that wasn't that easy, but but the hardest part was finding them. The eight people, the twenty people, the twenty. I, I, I had oh, to get the all twenty. The, I had to get all the twenty. The placebo people. I wanted to see the. Wow. Psilocybin. This okay. was all psilocybin. Okay. More placebo. Yeah. So to really, so it just was. Um, I thought, okay, I know all. I know the uh, Walter Pankey was dead. Timothy Leary didn't have the records. No, there was no no nobody knew who these people were. All we knew is that they were from this particular school, Andover Newton Theological Seminary, during these this during 1962. Oof. That's the only thing we knew. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, um, I'll go there. It wasn't that far from. Well, I, I, I would go there in person. I, I was living in Florida, but I came up here, and I thought I'll go to their alumni office and and just say, can I put something in the alumni newsletter, and ask if anybody was in the study. All right, so this is now 1986. This is still like height of the drug war uh, with Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And um, the alumni office says, no, we will not let you put this ad in. I'm like, this is the most important study ever done on the, the psychedelics and mystical experience, and your students were part of it, and this is a yeah, seminary school. Yeah, uh, you should want to know about this. You should be proud of this. Yeah. And and they're like, no, we just don't want to <gasps> do anything. We don't have, we want to have nothing to do with it. Wow. And I'm like, this is at a dead end. There's nothing. I'm done. So I thought, oh, I'll at least go in the library and I'll see if they've got anything about the thesis and any commentary about it. Maybe I'll learn something that way. So I go to the library. They don't have a speck of information about it. Nothing. This was a Harvard PhD classic. They have nothing about it, not the original thesis, even with their students, nothing about it. And I'm just like wandering around this library a bit, and I notice they have um, collections of the alumni and the yearbooks and stuff. And then I noticed that they had a book that had everybody who was in school in 1962 and their addresses. No way. Oh, because back then you did that. <laughs> there, there was no like cell phone. Right, there was right. No, you just put all your. There was no email. No email. You had an address. Yeah, that That's was it. it. That, that was it. That was totally it. And yeah. you found that in the library. I found it in the so library. So did, did you end up digging up the twenty people or as many I, I, as you it could? It took me about four years. Wow. Uh, of doing it, uh, but I found nineteen out of the. I identified nineteen out of the twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was pretty, and what I, was? And I would travel all over the country to see them, to interview them in person, and just yeah. Talk to them what about. was the? What were the lasting findings of the follow-up study? Well, the questionnaire. Well, just this is the, the, this mystical experience questionnaire that was given at the ex, um, experiment to describe their experience. I gave them the same questionnaires, mm-hmm. and the results were almost identical. You know, it was way more. They scored very low. The control group on mystical experience, the, the psilocybin group scored, scored quite high. Yeah, um, and the, their scores were almost identical even after all this time. So what that means is they had time to reflect on it, and they still considered it to be what they did at the beginning. Many of them had had um, spiritual experiences without psychedelics, mystical experiences without psychedelics. Um, <clears throat> that made them convinced that the psychedelic experience was as genuine as the others. Mm. But they often preferred the non-drug mystical experience because it was more uniformly like p- 
positive or stable, whereas with the psychedelics, it kind of was deep, but it was like waves. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and go, you know, you'd be traveling in different places. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, and they also remembered parts of it. That was incredible. So this was 25 years before. If I asked you about the movies you saw 25 years ago. Nope. Uh, <laughs> you know. Maybe some blurry, flashy streak uh, of color. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just saw, actually resaw um, Her- Harold and Maude. Oh, cool! That, that movie last night. I'd uh-huh. seen it like a long time ago. I didn't hardly remember any of it. It, mm-hmm. uh, um, it, it was, but but there's. But this, they they remembered. They oh, remembered um, pretty they remembered vivid parts of it. Yeah, that, that just and the placebo people didn't, and the the placebo people divided sort of into two groups. One was people that they were so intrigued by what was happening by what they could see their friends were going through, by what they heard about afterwards in this you know, intervening time shortly after, that they decided that they wanted to take psychedelics as soon as they could. Wow. Yeah. 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 The, the other half were so appalled by what they saw um, that they uh, decided they never wanted to take psychedelics. There was one situation that I discovered that was, um, a, I think, a good, um, big surprise and a big disappointment and a little bit of a key to the flaws of the, why some of the 60s self-destructed. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause this was a classic experiment and, and the way it was portrayed is that the people had the psilocybin, they had the mystical experience, but you know, and, and it got exaggerated to everybody that had the psilocybin had a mystical experience. Um, but there was one person that was so taken by the minister by Howard Thurman and the video, I mean the audio is on our website actually, of the Good Friday experiment, oh, the cool. actual sermon. Um, but he, he's, you have to tell people the man on the cross. He's, you have to tell people, and, and he, this guy decided that he would do that, that he should do that, that he should leave this chapel, he should go outside, he should tell people there is a man on the cross, and and he actually bolted out the door <laughs> <laughs> while he's high on psilocybin. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh... um, I think it was, um, yeah, Walter Pankey, Houston Smith. They went out to try to chase him. It's a big traffic uh, Commonwealth Ave right in front of the church. And uh-huh. They finally get him, and they um, luckily he's not hurt. But he doesn't want to go back in. Because the man on the cross. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's just like, it's nice outside. He's in the basement. Yeah. Of the right. So they give him a shot of Thorazine as a tranquilizer. Whoa. To calm him down, to take him off the trip, to bring him in. And um, they never mentioned that at all. Like in the study, it's never mentioned. Wow. They just took it for like, we've learned also that when you have a difficult psychedelic experience, therapeutically, the worst thing you could do is tranquilize somebody. Mm -hmm. It reinforces it, it freezes it in place, it gives the message they can't handle it. Much better for them to just sit through it or to, you know, while the tranquilizer eventually, or have support while through it, but, but just to try to, Try to deal with it, you know, even if you're stuck. Like I've described some of my early experiences being stuck, just to wait it out. Yeah, I mean, is, than isn't sometimes the, you know, I hear people talk about having a bad trip, but yeah. even a bad trip, I mean, is well, still potentially part of the reason that you're on that is well, maybe to work through something. Yeah. Work through yeah. the difficulty. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly. So we say that difficult is not the same as bad. Mm-hmm. And I think bad is resistance. Difficult is that's you're right. dealing with it. The world right. can be difficult. Your emotions can be difficult. The reality is difficult. Um, you know, we're here about uh, 
Veterans Day. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, well, yeah. The world is difficult, and um, people need um, support sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. And that must have been that follow up experiment that you did. Was that mm-hmm. one of your highlights around that time? Well, it was fantastic. This was the first research I ever did, and I did yeah. this as an undergraduate. And I yeah, think so that it, had to have been like so exciting, right? Oh, it was fantastic because what I was also learning is that you can create new facts. You know that you can y- yeah you, you yeah. can change the discussion completely. Yeah, it's not even filling out a blank page. It's creating a page and then writing on the page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you've added to the you, you, you're adding to the book. You shifted the balance. Sure. And that you can create this new thing. Because what, what I did discover, too, in addition to this omission, so it was in a way that they um, um, minimized the, the risks, a little bit exaggerated the benefits and a little mm-hmm. bit minimized the risks. And they maybe took this for granted that sometimes you give people Thorazine, but in any experiment, you, should, you have to report things that go wrong. Right, things that uh, you didn't. But but what I did discover, and this again validated this theory of change. Now this is after I've met the uh, Assistant Secretary General of the UN, and after a lot of this work, this was um, I, I was um, able to hear from multiple of the people that were in the Good Friday experiment that the, they did have this kind of sense of unity and connection. And that did motivate them more, gave them a, a certain impetus to do more work. They were already ministers to, in school, but that it, it strengthened their um, commitment to social justice causes and to a certain kind of activism, and that they had um, seen death in a different way. I mean, mm-hmm. part of this unit of experience is to see the natural natural cycles of life and death and that that's... Um, goes on and on and not to be feared it's just just uh, intrinsic and um, but also use the precious time that we do have so they they sort of had that sense of the uh, rarity of the moment and this mystical sense of how we really are connected so that uh, this thing that Howard Thurman had, had wanted that I think that it can be now I've just by the way spent some time just a few days ago with um, somebody um you know, running on the Republican ticket and telling me though that he'd had some great MDMA experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's not like yeah, everybody you know, but it's there's kind of like a general tendency I think that that is to be a bit more open, more emotional. He seemed pretty open-minded actually. No, he's got to be if he did MDMA in a lot, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think he was didn't think of himself as a. A lot of people, close-minded person. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people just write. I mean, they they'll write these drugs off just because of what they remember being told when they were ten. Yeah. You know, but so yeah. if that was one of the most exciting parts of that time, what's the yeah. mirror image of that today? Like, oh, in this. Memory, oh, the well, what? Right well, is these phase three studies? I mean, yeah, that yeah. is that's it. I mean, last week, um, finished the second phase three study. Um, the data analysis take a couple months. Um, we're if all is as we um, anticipate, we're hoping to have FDA approval in early 2020. Um, so I, I'd say that, the, uh, excuse me, early 2024. 2024. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's um, amazing. 
Yeah, and it will be um, at that point um, thirty-eight years so since I started. That's maps. wild. Now, what, <laughs> do, you, do you? I mean, back then, if you were told, "Hey, this is where you're going to be. You're going to be in a stage three uh, trial," would you have thought, "Great, that should be about ten years, twelve years"? Like, is this thirty-eight year period a lot to you I, I after think, all this time? Um, or? Well, they um, say that um, sunk costs. You know, you, you don't dwell on sunk costs. You know, uh, meaning that yeah, it took all that time. Yeah, um, I, I, I had a five-year plan for probably about fifteen years. <laughs> <laughs> I had a ten-year plan for about twenty years. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of the most embarrassing things is to go through old maps bulletins where I'll make predictions. Uh-huh. Oh wow! <laughs> but yeah, I budgets bet. and predictions sure. and stuff, and we're right around the corner. That's and hilarious. Stuff. But as we get closer and closer, we really are more um, able to have more information on our projections. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I th- I think we're in um, in really good shape, and I think also that. There's a growing um, preparation for the possibility that we do have FDA approval and what mm-hmm. that means and what it mostly means. And I, I haven't really emphasized this in, in yet in what we've been talked about is that it's not the MDMA, it's the therapy. The therapy is the healing part. The MDMA is used within that context, Mm -hmm. but it's not here's the the drug. So the key part is training the therapists Mm. and how we do that. And we hope to have like 25,000 therapists or so in this decade. There's 12 million PTSD patients in America. So it's enormous. Right, and it's a different Uh, type of therapy than just having a therapist, a typical therapist in there with somebody experiencing the drug. Yeah, it's 42 hours of therapy. It's, uh, at least the way we've done it, it's a two-person team Mm. of therapists. So it's male, female usually. But there's three eight-hour day-long sessions. So it's not like your 45-minute or 50-minute hour. So there's 12 90-minute sessions and three eight-hour sessions. And these eight-hour sessions are the experimental sessions. Start at 10 in the morning till 6 at night. Um, and it's a deep dive into sort of the core issues that people have. You could, you could say it's a... Um, the MDMA is almost like an anesthetic. You know, if you're going to have your body operated on, you, you get this anesthetic. Sometimes you're, it doesn't hurt. You're not aware of it being hurting. Um, Sometimes it is nitrous or laughing gas for people, mm-hmm. you know. So, so, you, so MDMA is almost like an anesthetic for emotional pain, and it, you can you're still dealing with it, but it's it's not the pain that you kind of react against. It's the pain you can kind of experience, and so mm-hmm. that again is what shifts it from bad to difficult. Right, and from that process um, people revisit um, the trauma and, and have memory greater than before so they're able to really remember more of the trauma because if they're not even parts that were deeply buried that, that um, and they're able to um, think about it in this cognitive processing 
way and there's a way it's prolonged exposure because you're you're dwelling with this um and then there's um what's called the memory reconsolidation you're, you're sort of as you restore this you, you've had this experience and you've acknowledged it um, you're able to put it into the past so it, it moves from foreground to background and it's part of your story people then can move on mm. um, and i think that's the it's not it's not that it never happened it's not that it um, isn't something that's sad in different ways but it's something that has become um, a piece of a larger tapestry mm-hmm. that people can there's even a measure sometimes we use called post-traumatic growth inventory so under certain circumstances if if you survive these traumas it helps you realize how precious every moment is or how simple kindness is so important and not to be um, forgotten about or um, it helps you think what do you most want to do with your limited time so th- there's ways of um, growing from it but it's um it's a way where I think people can um, incorporate um, very challenging material or, or emotions that, that people have been stuck or open up to deeper emo- emotions and love that you didn't know you were capable of. Yeah. It's great for couples therapy. Yeah. Um, we need to do research more of that with that. Um, it's a, a challenge in the sense that FDA, we can, be, we cannot uh, medicalize things for personal growth in a way. They have to be for diseases. Yeah, so why, I mean, why why not? Why? Well, the way our system of laws is. So we have certain drugs that are, you know, highly illegal drugs. Yeah. And then we have certain things that are medicines. Then we also have certain things that are religious sacraments, like ayahuasca can be used in the certain churches in the United States or peyote can be used by the Native American church. But the medicines, there's no like, for things that are like herbal medicines that are not scheduled drugs, that's that middle ground. You can, yeah. you know, but for drugs that are highly criminalized, there's there's only the medicines and then it's, it's a crime or it's a religion. And mm. synthetics, it's hard to, the, the the only things that have been made into religion so far are peyote and ayahuasca. Naturals, yeah. Na- naturals that have religious indigenous history behind them. Mm-hmm. Not just um, starting at the Grateful Dead or starting right. with Ken Kesey or, you know, in that kind of a cultural thing. But that, that can qualify for many people. That is um, a community. It's um, spiritual for, for, yeah, so it is. But getting... A DEA approval for that is is a different thing. Yeah, and uh, is yeah. that the is that the what's the biggest challenge as far as like a government body or is it or is it the pharmaceutical companies campaigning against uh, psychedelics? Uh, like what I know, there's so many. Yeah, anti, I don't see but. the I don't see the pharmaceutical companies. I think they um, they don't understand psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So this isn't like we're moving into. Well, in some ways, we're moving into their territory because there's billions and billions of dollars of yeah, antidepressants yeah. and stuff. So a lot of those are generic now. They, they haven't been recently invented. So there's less profit from a lot of those, um, but still enormous. But um, I think the even the Drug Enforcement Administration is um, not opposed to 
oh, here's a great story, not opposed to um, medicalization. You know, I mean, um, there, there were a bunch of things. We had to sue them, as I said. I also yeah. sued them again on marijuana, and they blocked uh, marijuana, uh, domestic marijuana production. Mm-hmm. So, so the DEA was successful in blocking cannabis for uh, 50 years, you know. And now it's an essential business. Um, well, now that pandemic. they've, now we've, yes. And, um, <laughs> yeah, the DEA has issued other licenses. Mm-hmm. I think the the zeal for the drug war has diminished. A lot of people realize how ineffective yeah. and counterproductive. And what are all these people dying of opiates, overdoses, if the drug war is working? It's just right. like, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not. So I, th- I think we're in a much different um climate so here's um there's um a, a book being written about mdma and the author wanted to know uh, for writing this book rachel Noor, if she could contact some of the early dea people that were involved in criminalizing mdma and could i connect her with some of those and, uh, and i was like well i can see why you'd want to do it it's interesting um frank the um Gene Hayslip was the the guy from Diversion Control at, at DEA headquarters that was leading the charge to make MDMA uh, criminalized, and he was no lo- he's no longer alive. But his deputy Frank Sapienza went to the different hearings that uh, this is in '85. I also went to, um, and he was quoted in um, Newsweek as saying that. Um, that the DEA was taken totally by surprise when I walked into the DEA headquarters to demand a hearing during this 30-day public comment period that they knew about ecstasy, but they didn't know that this whole therapeutic community was there, all that we or that we had been organized and that we had this DEA law firm working pro bono for us, mm-hmm. that, that we had these experts from Harvard Medical School, that we had this whole body of research and that we were just like, showed up out of nowhere. And, and so that's what he said. So I... Uh, I thought, okay, maybe he's alive. So, so I went and did a search on um, and found him on LinkedIn. And not only is he still alive, but he consults for pharma companies to wow. reschedule drugs. <laughs> uh, uh, to reschedule drugs. Yeah, when, when they're you know when you've got to make a drug into medicine. Yeah, yeah, he's got his special expertise. So I thought, great. Um, so I, I sent him an email. I said, we haven't spoken in 35 years. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of enjoyed, you know, just, I, I knew you weren't trying to crush therapeutic use. And here's this quote where you said that. And now, um, so, uh, you know, uh, I said, um, now we're on the verge of making this back into a medicine. You know, we, we weren't joking. It really is a medicine. We're doing all this great work. And we help first responders and police officers and veterans and all this. And I said, would you be open to helping us to consult with us when we negotiate with the DEA and what schedule it should be in? We've got this team that we're building. And um, and also this woman would like to interview you for her book. And the very next day he writes me back. And he said, yeah, I remember. I'd be glad to help. You know, I'll talk to the reporter. I'll, That's so cool. I'll connect with your team. So we've got somebody who was involved with criminalizing MDMA. And now. Is now helping us. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. I wonder well, if he's ever taken it. I don't think so at Probably all. Probably not. I, I don't think so at all. But, but I mean, uh, if somebody like that can come around, I, do you th- has yeah. it just been... We've I, got a senior DEA official. Yeah. Now, his son went to Iraq and got PTSD and found cannabis to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And then the father was like, well, how maybe cannabis is helpful sometimes and stuff. And so, um, yeah, now he's been... 
six or seven or more years consulting with us. He's moved from just on marijuana and he, to with psychedelics and yeah, yeah. I think there's has it, a lot. Has a lot of the ha, have a lot of the roadblocks in your journey been because people are so stuck in their old ways and they're just resistant. Because it seems like after a certain point, I mean, your first decade, the amount yeah. of research and evidence you had, yeah. and then your second decade, the more yeah. research yeah. and evidence came in. Like, what kept... Well, I'll say it took a decade and a half before we could start getting evidence of benefits. Mm-hmm. Before that had to be evidence of uh, that it wasn't as risky as people were saying. Okay. You know, because okay. there was this all these negative brain So you really needed time right? to set the foundation for... Unfortunately, I mean, but we knew from our own experience and working yeah. with people that, that it was fine, it was safe, it was therapeutic, you know, we didn't... But but yeah, but convincing the official world that was resistant in a lot of ways took took a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, but what was... Um, what I learned is that every step of the way, it's... Um, you have to kind of celebrate small victories, but also you have to separate out, um, at least for me, in this kind of work. It was, um, it was, I needed to be able to be happy at the end of the day, even if nothing had succeeded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and, and I needed to sustain that for like, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah. You know? And so I, I learned about, yeah, if I try, if I, I'm creative, um, I'll, I'll try my best and I can be happy at the end of the day. Yeah, so to see now that it's coming around and actually working is, is, is amazing. But now are the challenges of um, how do we bring it forth in a way that um, is a, in a capitalist society and pharmaceutical medicines? Yeah. Um, can we go the whole way with philanthropy? Well, we need to take investors. How do we get the resources that we need um, is a big question. Yeah. Do you yeah. see Do you see uh, different drugs like psilocybin or MDMA moving um, from the therapeutic space into a more commercialized space the way that weed has? Do you think that that... Yes, I do. I think that I think it can and it should. <clears throat> I think it'll take about... Um, 10 years of, of after medicalization for there to be full um, legal access. Mm-hmm. Um, now Regulated we'll, probably yeah. like the way weed dispensaries <clears throat> currently are. Yeah, although what, what just passed in Colorado or the Oregon Psilocybin oh, yeah. Initiative, the mm-hmm. natural plant medicines that passed in Colorado, it's about systems of um, supervised sessions and also more opportunities for people to have experiences. Um, it's not the same as exact um, legal access, but it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much um, that in a supervised way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So I think that um, there's a two-prong strategy. What's the real goal? The, the, we, we talk about MDMA, trauma. The, the goal is that humanity as a whole, I guess I've been talking about this all along this whole discussion, but humanity as a whole is like lemmings going over a cliff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's what it would seem. From If you've got somebody from outer space, you know, looking in, and you see the um, glaciers melting, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just... Uh, you, you, 
you just think, uh, God, I hope they make it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so we can make it. We're brilliant. We can solve all these problems. We just need to solve the emotional problems. Stop killing each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it starts maybe with some monks doing MDMA. Yeah. And floating. And and that, even that's higher. the simple uh, recipe yeah. for, for, for success. There are quite a few religions that could use a yeah. uh, dose of MDMA. Oh you know, God. they're drinking Liberate the blood of Jesus. The women too, and, you know. Right. They're God. eating They're eating the body of Christ. I think a little hit of MDMA and you get the teardrops of Jesus. And, and in the early Christianity, um, it does seem like that the wine was spiked and it was hallucinogenic, right. and that's how well, is Jesus it, is and it the his tree of friends life a built the, um, You could argue that in, you know? in, in different ways, and so sure. I think this is. Um, so we need two strategies: one is medicalization, one is legalization, mm-hmm. and they need to run in parallel. Do you do you ever think about um, how if certain medicines were legalized, it might impact the? Uh, I don't know, stewardship that those medicines have had over the years, such as psilocybin or ayahuasca, like the capitalization of those might not be, do you ever, do you ever think that the capitalization of substances like that might dilute what their original intention was? Um, no, no. I think that you may get diluted forms of it, but that the people who, who want to do it in the original ways will still be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So it, it won't dilute it for, um, and I think it'll it'll make more and more people want to get it in its full version, mm-hmm. you know, because Rather they'll, they'll see it. Down. Yeah, but but I think that yeah. there will be different ways. And I think one of the big things that we're talking about right now is the influence of insurance companies on minimizing therapy. I mean, you, you do need the oh, drug, but how yeah. much therapy do you need around the drug? We think a lot, and we think you get great results. And we want the insurance companies to pay for it. And we say that it'll save them money in the long run because PTSD, in particular depression, these have a lot of uh, corresponding health problems that you get living in a high stress or depressed state or just, you know, suicidality, emergency room. So, so the, we, we think that um, we should be able to persuade insurance companies to cover our full 42 hour treatment. Yeah. Um, but the pressure will be to make it as. You know, skinny as you cost can get effective it. as possible for had the dude. And, and, I mean, yeah. getting an insurance company yeah. seems harder than getting the government yeah. to agree with something. I, that well, seems like a monumental. Well, task. and it's different. In fact, in most countries of the world, where it's national health insurance. Mm-hmm. So what you need to show them is that these me- untreated mental health is extremely costly. I mean, if we look at our prison system and how expensive that is, most of that is untreated um, mental illness. Right. I mean, this is kind of a common understanding that that that's our treatment is prison, mm-hmm. and it's way more expensive and degrading, yeah, than, than other ways. So that there's um, a recognition that I mean, our the shift of our story of what we have to prove is fundamentally shifting from. Um, and although we're not there yet, I don't want to say we're there yet, but, but we've been all about trying to prove safety and efficacy. And then the shift is to prove uh, economic viability that, mm. and, and persuade insurance companies and national health care that this is um, an economic uh, cost that they should bear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have, uh, uh, with prisons too, I mean, have, have there been any moves toward 
helping inmates with this type of therapy? Well, in, in it's very years? difficult. So the Concord Prison Experiment. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. Go to, uh, so I um, learned from doing the follow-up to the Good Friday Experiment that these long-term follow-ups are incredibly valuable. And so Timothy Leary had done one other major experiment with Ralph Metzner um, at Harvard. They were there from 60 to 63 when Leary and Roundus got kicked out. Um, but this was an experiment. They, they realized that Talking about mystical experiences is like, okay, you got a questionnaire and people talk about it, but the real thing is what happens over time. Right. But if you look at whether you've got people in prison, whether they go back to prison is an objective outside measure, and it will convince people more than what we say, oh, they had a mystical experience. So it was a brilliant idea that, that you can do this um, experiment where they would go into prison Timothy Leary and Ralph Metzner and others in their team, and they would have psilocybin experiences for the prisoners. And they would sometimes take it with them. Seems like a terrible place to trip <laughs> inside of a prison. It, um, <laughs> but I, I'm sure they set up a nice room. They, they t- <laughs> well, I think if you're trapped in prison, getting free in your mind. Oh, actually, yeah, you're right. It would be terrible for me not yeah. being in prison. I, I have prison, had but for them, friends I, yeah, you're totally right. In prison, and you think it's an obvious thing that they would catch, but they didn't always do it, is you just put a hit of blotter acid under the stamp and you, you know, mail it to Nice. We'll cut this part out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, not saying you did or didn't do that. Uh, so long, it's this... I think uh, nobody's going to come after somebody me. Somebody else's trick for, yeah. for, for that. Uh, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll own it. I'm proud of it. Uh, I mean, the next thing, of course, is just to drop liquid acid on the envelope, and you can't even <laughs> yeah. tell. But how do you communicate that? Is a little bit more of a right question. Yeah, you can't just draw an arrow with a pen. <laughs> say lick here, lick here, tear this part out. Yeah, yeah. You fold the corners so that they know. Actually, that's not bad. You drop a hit of acid on the corner, and then you fold that corner. So when they get it, there's only one corner folded. But if yes. the whole thing comes flat, they got to mm. eat the entire envelope, and then what? It's are you? it's um yeah. So it is hard to to um, work with prisoners now. Uh, yeah, I, I think working with them as they soon get out to try to. All right, so the concrete prison experiment gave them experiences inside prison, and then the idea is that they would track them and um, track for recidivism. And it was considered to be a tremendous success. This is one of the best examples of psychedelic research, really obvious. And, um, and the whole world basically thought that this was a tremendous success. So I had gotten my um, paper published about the Good Friday Experiment, and there was an op-ed in the Boston Globe about it. And then I got a call from someone who worked for the Department of Corrections in Massachusetts, and he'd read this about the Good Friday Experiment. He wanted to know, did I want to do a follow-up, Michael Forcier is his name, to the um, Concord Prison Experiment, that he had a list of all the prisoners. Nobody else had a list of the prisoners. He said that the prison system had files for their interesting prisoners. And the p- prisoners that were in the Concord Prison Experiment, they had the list of them, and they had this record yeah, yeah. segregated, and, and did I want to study them? And I'm like, do I want to study them? This is like a great experiment i want to bring it to light i'd love to do it it was just an incredible opportunity took us a whole year to get permission we had to go all the way up to the governor wow the governor's office um the the slip that said uh permission to go to the records had this penciled in thing um 
no psilocybin to be administered. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're, 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 okay, just to be clear, you know, we're just asking questions of something uh, that was, you know, 37 years before or so. So we ended up um, finally getting permission. And um, the more that I started looking at the records, the, the more questions I had about <clears throat> the findings. Because it turned out some of these people were going back to jail. And the more I did, the more I got worried. And then finally what I figured out is, is that um, the way they counted things, um, what, what they said, what Leary had said is that, um, well, over time, the more he talked about the results, they just kept getting better and better and better. So, so if, if you go back to the original documents, you, you get one thing, but, but you get all these other stories over the decades so mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. kind of covers it up. And a lot of people don't go back to the original documents. Right. <clears throat> um, and I hadn't either. I had read all this other stuff. That's why I thought it was such a great experiment. Um, and so what it turned out is that um, he started saying that um, People did go back to prison, but they were just parole violations, little things. They were supervised non, more. Non-violent. Non, I mean, non, maybe they wanted to go back because that was the best mushrooms. They, they, they weren't at work. They, well, when they were supposed to be at work, they weren't at work or something like right, that. Right, something it's, silly, yeah. You know, something like that. So, so it turns out that that was right, that a bunch of these people had uh, gone back to jail for parole violations. But what I found later is that it was for crimes that they had committed for which they were later convicted. So even though it was a parole violation, it was because of not some silly thing like they hadn't showed up at work, but because they had actually committed a crime and they had been arrested for it, and then later they were convicted. But oh. the, but the way that he just reported it was um, this excuse kind of it was, the, and and the records would show that it was a parole violation that went them initially. That's why they went back. Right. But but the other thing that he did, and this was where going back to the source documents, um, is that. He talked about how the there's like 34 people or so, something like that, that had the psilocybin, and that they had been out of, um, they had a recidivism rate that was um, better than the recidivism rate. They'd done a base rate study of everybody in the prison mm-hmm. um, years before. Well, it, it turned out that the um, study itself with the psilocybin, they, they had an average of 10 months out of, jail so just logically you think the the more you're out of jail the more time you have to get in trouble the more likely you are to get busted again so Mm. the odds of of more and more people going back to jail recidivism goes up the longer it is that they're out of jail sure so their study was done at 10 months and they said that it compared uh, best for this uh, base rate study all right so i went back to the base rate study and um the base rate study that they used was for 24 months. So they were comparing people out of been jail two months, two years with people that had been out of jail ten for months. 10 months. That's not <laughs> comparable. No, That's no, not. but but this was back in, again before the internet. So this was a British Journal of Criminology oh, man. where the base rate study had been, you know, I had to go deep in the libraries, our libraries and get all this thing. And, and when I finally read it, I was like, how basic but what was shocking was that how is it that an advocate of psychedelics when there was so much animosity against leary 
that I would be the one to discover that he had not accurately reported this. Right. How, yeah. How, how is it that I'm the one that debunks this study? That, because that, no one was paying attention. Uh, or they just, uh, they I, just I, I, somehow the, uh, people didn't go back to this little document. Yeah, yeah. People weren't so giving it the And then attention. it was just like, um, obviously I had to share that. But then the, the thing that was redeeming is that Leary and, and Messner realized that after they had gotten these people with this psilocybin experience, they'd had this pro-social spiritual experience, they'd worked through some traumas, they come out, um, that they needed a support group. It wasn't enough to just help them in prison. You need to help them when they're out of prison to create a new life, to get a job, to get a part. You, you mm -hmm. need to kind of There needs build. to be more. There, there needs, needs to, to be, be more. support and system. It, and that they started building that, and that's when they got kicked out of Harvard. Mm. All right, so the conclusion is, even though the Good Friday experiment did not really work, it was because um, there was too much hopes placed in the psychedelic experience, not enough in the integration, not enough into the support group. And if you do both of those things, it could probably make a big difference. And it also should be for prison guards, for police officers. They're all brutalized by the system. Yeah. And I think that um, we will eventually um, try to work with, um, actually, okay, this is a good point for me to, say that um, the long-term goal mm -hmm. is a world of net zero trauma. Mm. So we want to have net zero carbon. We, mm -hmm. There's always going to be trauma. There's always going to be heartache. People are always going to die of this and that. There'll always be some conflicts. But we'd like to have net zero trauma, you know, like some stable level, not, not increasing. What we have now, right. and what we're going to have probably for the next 20, 30 years is going to be increasing trauma from climate change, from sure, everything we're going economic through. stuff, yeah. culture wars. Right. Everything. So what we need is to really um, develop a metric of the global burden of trauma and, and then try to see if we can reduce it by 2070 by, you know, more or less 50 years. Are you working on this metric? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, well, this is our, our proposal now, yeah. is that um, to think about, like, like a goal, everybody should have pure water. Mm -hmm. You know, so, okay, so that's a, you know, so charity water, you know, you yeah. like, so our goal is a world of net zero trauma. So we have to develop a metric. The Bhutan has a, a metric for um, happiness. And they rank other countries on you know global happiness measures. So if we do this net um, zero um, trauma goal, we would do a lot of work in prisons, a lot of work with refugees. A lot. Of, I mean, the, there's predicted. Some predictions are over a billion climate refugees by 2050. Mm. You know, um, <clears throat> so there's got to be this um, massive global therapeutic process and it cannot be um, only in the Western model because there's not enough therapists there's not enough psychiatrists we're gonna have to find indigenous healers different ways to so that's where we would learn from you know indigenous groups how, how they want to do that group settings of some kind um, so our, our thought would be to um, end up with 25 30,000 psychedelic clinics all over the world. And then over generations or two, you, you try to really shift humanity in more of this um, mass mental health and spiritualized humanity direction. 
and we we need to recognize though that it will be getting more stressful i think over the next couple of decades um, but that if we can work together um, it's um, i mean what are we doing right now the technology that we're using for people to hear our conversation mm-hmm. it's astounding yeah so this metric i mean that sounds like such a heavy task to, to create a metric. Yeah. To, to, well, to how, do you, measure, how uh, do you measure? How do you, you measure, measure happiness? I mean, you have to think about. It. So, there's there's PTSD. So mm-hmm. there's there's estimates of the number of people with PTSD. Okay. But there's a lot of um, that. That's like um, when it gets to be really extreme, it becomes PTSD. But there's loads of trauma below that that people yeah. cope with. So how do you measure all of that? Gender violence. Um, I think you have to be um, police harassment, abuse. Or, yeah, I, I think that that there is going that, that that's you know we're measuring pollution. How do we measure? You know, it's mm-hmm. another way to say trauma. Okay. That yeah. that it, it it will take population surveys. I mean, it's going to be um, to do it in every country. Yeah, you you have to. How do you know that you can get crime records? You know how many rapes and murders or you know mm-hmm. i mean um I, I was just in mexico city um at the institute for psychiatry <clears throat> and they want to start uh, psychedelic research in mexico they're the mexican government um like equivalent of the national institute of mental health um, they haven't had psychedelic research for 50 years um in mexico but th- they have enormous amounts of ptsd you know, and they, they have all the cartel violence and right. gender violence and just the poverty and refugees coming through migrants. And yeah, so I, th- I think there's ways to measure it. I mean, so I think one part of what we would do is be having this team that's the measurers. Then ho- hopefully the bigger, way bigger team is the therapist. Yeah. We're trying yeah, to tip yeah. the scales. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to come up with a name for that too. Uh, a name for the, the unit of trauma. How much? Like how many? Uh, uh, how many sads uh, per country? We can't go over five million that, that, sads that is, per year, <laughs> and then we can create an acronym with sad. Just set, sorry, uh, sodden and desperate it could be the, the acronym. Uh, substance abuse, depression. Yeah, yeah. How do we? Uh, how do we how bring do these sads uh, down to a net zero? Um, that's incredible, man. Uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, but I, I think you're right. There will be some acronym, there's some gotta units. Be some, you know, cause pollution, <laughs> it's like some amount and everything else. Parts but, per billion. Parts per, right. Exactly. How many sads <laughs> per billion do we have? How many, <laughs> how many cries per trillion? Oh, oh, how many laughs per day? How many laughs per day? I need at least a hundred. <laughs> Otherwise I start to weigh down on the trauma scale. Uh, Rick, there's so much that we could talk about. Oh, there is one more thing I'd like to talk about. Please, and then I have rapid-fire questions oh, okay. to end it. So this is that um, it does seem like we're there's hundreds of um, for-profit psychedelic companies. I just read today over $3 billion has been put into psychedelics. $3 billion. $3 billion. There's all sorts of um, – there's five times more research now than in the 60s Wow. with psychedelics. Um, and 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 we've just finished our second phase three study, and and if we do get approval, it's in early 2024. It's like the doorway to a new world. So we are having the world's largest conference on psychedelics ever coming up in June of 2023 in Denver, and Colorado has just passed the Natural Medicines Act. Mm-hmm. 
So we're expecting around 10,000 people. We have the wow. Denver Convention Center. We Amazing. have all these hotel rooms. And we have just an enormous amount of scientific information that's being generated, of business opportunities that are developing, of art, of um, music, just of... Um, the first two days of the conference are going to be experiential. So meaning um, all these different ways, um, holotropic breathwork, hyperventilation. Yeah. So Stan Groff and uh, Brigida will be coming to help coordinate that. Naropa, which is a school nearby, is going to lead a meditation retreat. Awesome. We're going to have uh, ceremonies with Rape, which is a uh, yeah. nicotine base, but, yeah. but you can ceremonialize it. Takes is that the uh, nasal, uh, nasal yeah. inhale? Yeah, yeah. like yeah. A, yeah. A, a, a nicotine. Yeah, kind of. yep. yeah. We'll, we'll have um, stoned yoga mm -hmm. and various experiential kinds. <laughs> um, I'd like to organize um, ayahuasca ceremonies from the um, Santo Daime tradition, which is federally legal. Um, and so we'd like a couple days of experiential and then three days of the conference and then one day of sort of picnic. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, one day of recovery. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that last day is your therapy day. Right. Everybody talks about their feelings right. on the last day. That's amazing. Is, is this, uh, this doesn't sound 10,000 people can't be invitation only then. Oh, no, it's not. No, no, yeah, no, no, that's, no. That's no. This be... is, we're running, um, we're still, um, we haven't finalized it yet, but we're in negotiations for a big set of dorm rooms right near the convention center. So it'll be low cost housing, hopefully for students, wow. but we have loads of hotels. We did negotiate the prices a couple of years ago. Now there is a bit of inflation. So they're, yep. all, they're good deals. Are tickets out already? <laughs> yes. To... We've already sold over a thousand tickets. Wow. Where, for, where for do people June. buy tickets? Um, psychedelicscience.org. Amazing. Yeah, Count and, me in for and, two. Yeah, might just pop up he, a comedy he, tent off to the side. Well, we're gonna have we have a, there's a five thousand uh, seat theater there. Oh yeah, there, there's gonna for, be comedy stuff. There's gonna be okay. We'll talk. Yeah, and and part of it is gonna be coming out, mm -hmm. like this idea of people telling their stories. Yeah, of, um, yeah, there'll be, um, I think, kind of a real sense of uh, the next step of integration of mainstreaming. Um. We the mayor is going to open up the conference. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. You should invite every former Dare officer <laughs> to this conference. Every single one. I remember <laughs> Officer Reynolds in my high school telling us oh. about smoking oh. weed and taking our parents' pills. And I mean, obviously that's bad, but like you know, <laughs> uh, just like you can't. Don't do these things. They're all bad. So it's just wild to well, see. You, that you know, it's just amazing. Person. It's amazing that you're saying this, though, because I just was at a conference in Miami called Wonderland, mm -hmm. put on by this group, Microdose, about uh, a lot of psychedelic investors. And they had to hire a certain number of police in order to, you know, for the crowds, the city requirement. And one of them came up to the organizer, Patrick, and said that he was an um, undercover narcotics officer. But that he was learning an incredible amount of all these drugs, <laughs> and, 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 and he said, "Could he bring a bunch of his police friends over?" Man, he said it's not going to be any trouble. They just would like to, yeah. Know, see. And, imagine and, what that's and, like. And by the end, there was a bunch of police officers there that were listening. Were they these, uniformed? Were they? Um, or, some of them were. Okay. Yeah, yes. 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 Um, so, I can't so imagine and, what that's and, like and, being a police officer or somebody yeah. in that line of work. Yeah. Seeing this happen and just realizing that such a significant part of what you were told to be true yeah. about your job is yeah. now just being crushed in front of you. Yeah. That's so crazy. It, it, it's hard to, to realize that you've been um, 
engaged in a counterproductive situation. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I know you got to go. I appreciate your time. Wow, Let me hit great. you with a couple of fun the, the, questions. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and then I'll have one or two for you. Oh, please. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, question number one. Um, what's like, and this might be a crazy one, but we're going to start a little <laughs> wild. I want to know, you know, every time I do psychedelics with a friend or, or uh-huh. on my own, if I'm doing a, um, a, a journey dose to uh-huh. overcome whatever yeah. issue or just to allow yeah. a an intention to come to me. Sometimes I don't always bring intention into the moment. Yeah. Um, I always find that there's some type of metaphor that pops up, you know, in uh-huh. your mind, it, you get taught certain metaphors mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, the microwave, I left it open. Maybe that means I need to open my heart up a little uh, more, uh, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering what, um, one of the most kind of inspirational ah, moments was to you. Ah, uh, like what okay. that metaphor was. Ah, yes. And if maybe it made you chuckle a little bit uh, a, a day or two later. Um, and if you have oh, more than this one. This is a great totally question. Fine. Okay, and I think I have a really good uh, answer. So we're cool. here um, at a, um, a vet scala, and it's for a lot of people, vets, uh, Navy SEALs and others with trauma that have gone down to Mexico for Ibogaine and often uh, 5-MeO-DMT. Mm-hmm. So the experience is my Ibogaine experience. And the metaphor, it was one of the hardest experiences I've ever had. Um, it was actually before these DEA lawsuits, and, and part of it that I was um, being um, given an LSD experience by um, Leo Zeff, the secret chief, the leader of the underground psychedelic therapy movement, and this was... Um, um, plant ibogaine takes a while so he gave me um 350 micrograms of lsd and a bunch of ibogaine um to work on my own shadow so i I would be um, a little bit better able to deal with the police without Mm -hmm. demonizing them stuff so the metaphor i spent about 10 hours um vomiting (laughs) (laughs) you know and uh, or and what what i would I, i felt like it's so important that I get this right. It's so important that I, uh, you know, understand the psychedelics and understand this, that I have to get this right. And that, um, and, and, uh, that it's just this, uh, dissolution, this, you know, you hear about ego death and all, all, all this kind of phraseology. Um, and I just have this sense that, um, I can't quite do it right. I'm not quite, doing it right or something you know that that i'm uh, that there's uh, that that if i were to be fully aware of death i would be fully aware of life and i would be able to do it what i need to do but it just was too scary i wasn't doing quite right and so this idea of this um self-critical part you know and i would see that and then i would see the link between the self-critical part and the self-hatred part and then the self-hatred part i would just see that and i would just like this perfectionism you know, why, why do I have to be perfect? It's like the, the desire not to be human, you know, because humans are not perfect. And, you know, I think eating disorders is kind of, can be like this too, but, but it was just this idea that I was being, um, seeing, I was crucified on the cross of self-perfectionism. Wow. That's the image that I had. Whoa. That, that I was being crucified on the cross of self-perfectionism. And I couldn't get out of it. Was that a phrase that came to you during the, the experience? Moment? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This was on psilocybin, you said? No, this was ibogaine. This ibogaine. was the ibogaine. LSD ibogaine LSD combination, ibogaine. Yeah. Yeah. and that um, 
by the end, I just kept this cycle. I would see it, uh, and I would be choking and coughing and feeling like I was dying, didn't have, like I was aware of death, you know, but, but I was somehow not doing it right. And at the end of the day, after all this agony, somehow I just, I call, this part I called um, <clears throat> transcendence by exhaustion. I didn't resolve it. I didn't work my way through it. Somehow I just got so exhausted that I just let go. And mm. it was the most blissful, beautiful night. And I realized the wow. key point was that I needed to, the self-critical part is absolutely essential. You need this constant, constant, constant self-critical part. But you need to separate it out from the self-hatred. And you don't need to be perfect. So that you, this is the drive for quality, the self-critical part. So that once I could separate out this from this painful, then it's just, okay, I should have done that. I should have done this. You know, but really, if I hadn't have done this first thing, I wouldn't have learned this lesson anyway. So mm -hmm. it's, I'm great for having tried something new. Yeah. You know, so, so but I, I, I have a, I think ever since then, um, I've had a greater access to this self-critical part because it has been less painful. The same way you could say about um, greater access to memories of trauma because it's not as painful. You've, you've integrated it. Yeah. And it was this night, this most blissful night of I could see the stars through the skylights and, and it was just like absolute acceptance and peace and, and this is where I'm sorting out. I, d I need to really... Um, make an ally out of the self-critical part. But somehow I told myself I didn't earn it. And by the morning, um, when the sun came up and the tides came in, we were on the water, I was like, I, I'll be back in this nausea part. And, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And so the whole next day I couldn't move. I was stuck on the floor. Oh, I was barely, I was like in the fetal position. And, and finally the third day somebody came and picked me up and, and as we went home, and I'd never been to this place before, I just had this idea that I could somehow or other predict what was around the corner and things. Um, and I'd been there coming here, but and I was able to be right a bunch of times. So I think it, it I had the information in there, but I, yeah. the chat, and the inner chatter. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. I quieted that out a little the bit. The chatter was clouding your memory of memory, things. Right. And yeah, and I'd quieted that a little bit. And um, it was, took four days before I felt safe enough to drive. Wow. Oh my God. But, but I, re I think of that, that was 1985, as one of the key psychedelic experiences, and that it was, um, import it, it was an important learning, and, and um, it's affected me, I think, every day. And it was ironic for me to be Jewish, to have the image, to, the metaphor to be crucified on the cross of self-perfectionism, a very Jesus kind of mm -hmm. metaphor. It's a beautiful phrasing. That just came to you. I mean, that alone. You wrote a yeah. poem <laughs> in the moment. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, next. You're, you're dropped on a desert island. Mm. You have all the food and water that you need. Uh -huh. um, you're only allowed to bring one psychedelic drug. Mm. And you're there forever. <laughs> what are you bringing and why? Uh, LSD. Okay. LSD. Yeah. Um, there's Why is that... Um, MDMA is beautiful. It's wonderful. If I didn't have um, somebody, I was there by myself, so I wasn't in a relationship with anybody. Wouldn't need it for that purpose. Right. Uh, on this, uh, so uh, the thing is about LSD um, is that you need to, it, it can help you see things you don't want to see. Mm. You know, or, or it, 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 it's about surrender. 
there's a little bit of negotiation with MDMA. MDMA is sweeter, gentler, more beautiful. Heart-based, yeah. Heart-based. But there's also exquisite moments with LSD. Um, but there's a way in which it's a little bit open, more open to um, what you might not want to see. And so I, I think it would be better for me mm. if I did just one thing. It would, it would be LSD. Do you think LSD... I hesitate to say anything too general because I know these medicines and their experiences can be so subjective based on the person and the type of trauma or, or mm-hmm. challenge that they're trying to work through. But um, do you find that of, of all psychedelics that there's one or two that might stand out as the most helpful overall? Or do they each kind of fall um, within <clears throat> a, a different category of challenge or trauma? Depending on I, what the drug I, is, I think that the um, well, the the research into um, who gets better from therapy into therapeutic outcomes has showed that the critical factor is not the kind of therapy, but it's the therapeutic alliance between the person and the therapist mm-hmm. in the safe, trusting environment, um, and so the the form of the the therapy. Is, is of secondary importance to feeling like you can go to difficult places. <coughs> so what I think is that the classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, um, mescaline, um, you know, ayahuasca, even, you know, DMT, and, uh, that they operate kind of in this uh, rainbow, but it's they're sort of in the same general place. Yeah. And so that... You know, we can talk about MDMA for PTSD. Bunches of people here have gone down to Mexico for Ibogaine for PTSD and traumatic brain injuries and 5-MeO that people go for ketamine for PTSD, go to psilocybin for PTSD. You know, which is the best uh, for which condition is different for each person too and what what their background is. So I think this... um, field of psychedelic medicine is what we're trying to bring forward and have therapists be able to be cross-trained in all these modalities and then customize what they give to each person mm-hmm. and that that's the psychedelic well, they, therapy. And they would customize the what they give to each person based on that person's trauma or challenge that they're working through? Like, Do you see, do you see something like PTSD as requiring a different form of psychedelic therapy and drug then okay this is another good point is that um <clears throat> the the research with the classic psychedelics which which do tend to produce more of this mystical experience has shown that there's a correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and therapeutic outcomes reduction of depression or ocd or um, substance use or um, and that was true in the 60s, and it's true the last 20 years for the classic psychedelics. However, with MDMA, um, for PTSD, there is no correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and therapeutic outcome. So it's a different kind of mechanism in that you're dealing with your biography, things that have happened to you. You have kind of an intact ego. There is what's called the epigenetics of trauma, which is multi-generational trauma, mm. which is kind of um, what turns genes on and off for, right. for anxiety, for depression. And there's Rachel Yude has done a study with Holocaust survivors and their children and have shown epigenetic measures 
<clears throat> we're actually studying that wow. now. Wow. So to, they so they they'll pass along the it's, genes it's, for it's stress, like anxiety, not, and not, trauma. No, no, or, or, no, no. It's what turns on the genes. So what the, turns genes on are, the genes are the genes got it, are got it, got it, got it. All right. Well, yeah. So there's things on EPA is on top of. So it's on top of the genes. It's right. kind of turns them on and off, and that that can evolve in a lifetime. That can change in in a day, in certain kind of things, um, you know, or over a lifetime. But the genes are much slower, slower, slower. But mm-hmm. but but the effect on you and your behavior and your moods can be dramatically changed in a in a relatively short amount of time. And we can probably end or minimize certain of these um, cycles of trauma that go down from generate. You hear about hurt people, hurt people, and how do you stop that from happening? So that, that's where I think we can get to a world of net zero trauma. Yeah. And that, it's going to be um, a big task, but it'll, you know, but it can be done. Cool. I know we can. We can get these sads part, sad parts per billions <laughs> down. Um, okay, next. Uh, the, um, these are quick questions, but long answers. So. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, I don't want to get too political here, oh, but um, I am of a very strong belief that anybody running for president uh, should do a very heavy dose of mushrooms <laughs> during their political campaign at some point, uh-huh. uh, particularly mm. before the debate happens. Mm, yeah. Uh, if if you were to write a new regulation mm. into American politics, <laughs> stating that anyone running for president needs to yeah. undergo psychedelic therapy, uh-huh. what do you think would be best? Ah, uh, I think that's um, for our potential <clears throat> candidates. Well, um, <clears throat> we're saying, first off, for the therapists that we are training, that they'll be more effective if they've done MDMA themselves mm-hmm. to, to give MDMA to patients, but we will never require it. We highly recommend it. So I'm already a little nervous about your hypothetical of requiring <laughs> people to do things. <clears throat> uh, um, str- we'll say strongly advise. Okay. We strongly yeah, advise the presidential candidates. Yeah. 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 Um, I would advise MDMA, and I'm trying to think if I would advise MDMA with a couples therapy or with them individually. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think, you know, if you gave MDMA to Trump, would he become empathic? Probably not. You know, so, I mean, I think you have to be willing. You have to be open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to feel safe, you know. so you could put him I, in a gold mansion. Th- there are... Um, um, I think, okay, so there's two sort of general theories, again, um, what, about what we'd want politicians to have. There, There is an ayahuasca church not far from Washington, D.C. that's federally legal. So oh. there is a, efforts to bring politicians to um, ayahuasca mm-hmm. and their staff, you know, and that, that's been happening. There is, uh, you know, there's Israelis and Palestinians doing ayahuasca and MDMA together as well. Um if people want to read the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, there's an article about how um, this woman, Carol Rosson, and I in the middle 80s um, sent um, large amounts of MDMA into Russia to, with their uh, military people and arms negotiators during the Reagan-Gorbachev negotiations. Yeah. You know, so, um, um, so I think that w- one idea is to... Um, see their um, common humanity. The other is to 
clear up your fears and anxieties about the others. And I think, mm. you know, ideally you do both. But I would say that uh, I would start with MDMA. I would encourage them to have an MDMA to kind of self-love, self-connection, work that. But I will say something very interesting about uh, the influence of um, the spiritual experience in a way. So during the Reagan and Gorbachev arms control negotiations, which were the most important things happening in the world at the time, more than business, it was just incredible. The thing that was amazing was that the dates were... Um, set by Nancy Reagan's astrologer. So you can check this out, and it's very documented that Ronald Reagan, <laughs> these kind of, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, that, that she believed in astrology. She was, really? Not only did she believe in astrology, but her astrologer set the dates for the Reagan-Gorbachev arms control negotiations. Whoa. And wow. they were almost always on the full moon. So they had these late night negotiations that would go on and it would be under the full moon and they would kind of realize we're trying to not blow the whole world up. We're trying to, you know, it would be a little bit more of a cosmic kind of thing. Wow. That yeah, would yeah, yeah. be a background. Yeah. To the, they would they have still a, have to work on the negotiations. Sure, but, it would but be they would have this slightly, lift, slightly elevated yeah. pattern of thought. Yes, yes. And wow. they, because they, they always talked about negotiating late into the night under the full moon. Mm -hmm. And so I think the spiritual experiences kind of would be like that. Also the MDMA experience to feel this love and connection and work through some of your own so, issues. So, so I, we need, so what you're saying is we need to schedule presidential debates to be on the full moon. I think that, um, that, well, when I, um, <laughs> my wife and I decided to get married, um, and we created our own ceremony, we got married under the full moon. Awesome. Yeah. Then that would yeah. help. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah. Trump doing an ounce of Molly and we, <laughs> and we give Biden a whole bunch of LSD <laughs> and Trump's heart expands and Biden's <laughs> brain grows and everybody just starts getting along more. That would be my wish. Well, let it be, be so, wish, you, you know? know, as they say. Um, do you, um, but, but actually I do think that the strategy to be serious is that, um, the mental health uh, has to reside in the mass of the people. Mm. The, it has to be a spiritualized humanity, mass mental health, because the, the, the people that we have are the representatives. If, you know, if they can play on fears and anxieties, they will, but, but the, the power is given from the people to, to these people, and there mm -hmm. will always be sociopaths and people that are willing to advance, take advantage of that. So th that's just to say that um, it is a great vision to take a few leaders and help them be better. I would but, love but, it. But I think yeah. we, we need to <laughs> do we need that to do on that. a billion, billion scale. For sure. Yeah, we yeah. need to set the foundation for that to happen. Yeah. So that once we set the foundation, the next leaders that arise will be arising from this pot of people who have mm -hmm. reached this next level of less, lower trauma and more enlightenment and more of a spiritual yeah. connection so there, there's to themselves this, and others. Yeah, so to continue this uh, biblical uh, theme, there, there's an issue of what, why I think it'll be a couple generations, 2070, for us to have this spiritualized humanity. And so yeah. one of the leaps of logic I'll make here is that um, when the, um, the Passover is, when the uh, you know Israelis you know left slavery under Pharaoh, and they spent 40 years wandering in the desert, in the Sinai Desert, before they crossed into the promised land. Well, the Sinai desert is not that big. You know, why did it take them 40 years? <laughs> 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 uh, 
I mean, actually, I have an Israeli cousin uh, who was in the Israeli uh, army, and they said part of the things that they did is they would dump them in the Sinai Desert, with, and they'd have to figure out how to get out, oh, you know, by different kind of locating yeah, things yeah. without a lot of tools and stuff. And he said he could understand how people could get lost there yeah. <laughs> for a long time. But the idea, I think, is that um, the, the idea was that people born into freedom would be the ones to start the promised land, that the people who were born into slavery, just you absorb stuff like that, you just think of yourself differently. They had to die out, the next generation, the people who were born into freedom. So I think the people who are born into this more um, yeah, mm-hmm. net zero trauma world will be... Those will be the people the, to rise and... To, to really do great work. Yeah. Well, well, but the great work, the greater work, you could even say, is getting us from this morass of trauma you right. know, on that trajectory. Yeah. Um, or, you know, We're getting, you're getting us there. Or, but I, I, didn't even know, I shouldn't say it like that. There'll, there'll always be great challenges at every age. Sure. And, and, it's, sure. and, and this just happens to be ours. And um, I think it is... Um, Really delicate. I mean, the the Colorado initiative was like fifty one to forty nine. Yeah, it was not a blowout. Not at all. It was too close, like scarily close. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be way. I mean, maybe that's my own naivety, but I thought it was going to be way outnumbered in favor. Yeah. Um. So lots of work to do, though. Do you yeah. know, I think a, a big part of that work, though, too, is reducing the stigma, the societal yeah, stigma. Yes, I yes. mean, it's massive. That's, yeah. uh, well, that's the coming out. That's this idea also of yeah. the psychedelic science. Um, Tell your parents about, have you talked to your parents about drugs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I like to also encourage people to think about becoming a member of MAPS. You know, we've been mm-hmm. concentrating so much on the major donor strategy, but we have a, um, you know, um, an incredibly good uh, bulletin, and we have a lot of things for members. So we'd really like to build our base too, from mm-hmm. you know people that just donate like fifty bucks or something a year or whatever. Yeah, and we'd like to really because then then they become connected to all the information flows mm-hmm. more, more easily, and, and they can see come to the on. conference. Yeah, yeah, reducing the stigma too. I think comes with just injecting more positivity around the subject matter into culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I'm yeah. talking to everybody about how Santa is a mushroom. Do you, do you know about? Do you know about I, I know Santa the, being a mushroom? The uh, Amanita muscaria, yeah, and the reindeer, and the reindeer, uh, yeah. and how the shamans <laughs> in Finland and Siberia uh-huh. would pick the uh-huh. Amanita mushroom under a pine tree. Yeah, pine trees are what we bring inside for uh-huh. Christmas trees, right? Uh huh. Do you know about all the, yeah, all the different yeah. things? I, oh, I, man, it's so think. cool. Yeah. Well, I think this book I'll, I'll recommend, uh, Brian Muir Rescue, the book is The Immortality Key. Yeah. So it's really about how the early wine of Christianity was spiked. And that the, it, this transition from pagans to Christianity, there was this, you know, three, four hundred year period before the Catholic Church wiped it out. And, you know, where the formation of this religion was um, infused by... Uh, Psychedelic experiences, and they're yeah. finding more and more evidence about that. And with this um, incredible technique of taking old um, chalices from thousands of years ago, yeah, they can find physical evidence, right? They can do inside stuff inside of the yeah things that were there leave a tiny, tiny residue. Yeah, that you can scrape off and look at, and and 
pick yeah, apart yeah. underneath a microscope or on, yeah on yeah the, the there are people that specialize in that stuff scale. and they are they are finding all sorts of psychoactive things so in what was once yeah one. so santa is a mushroom but but you know jesus jesus is a, <laughs> wait, what does that make jesus <laughs> jesus got high jesus know? got high santa's a mushroom and jesus is a peyote plant yeah that's why no, no i think jesus was a person yeah you know yeah i think but but okay so here's something that my wife shared with me just as a, a wonderful thing yeah um so it's like how do we rethink what what really happened back then so um the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. So my wife Lynn worked for the World Council of Churches and did third world development all over the world and uh, with mostly women projects. But um, these are more like the liberal Protestant version of the Vatican and stuff. So these were people who are not fundamentalists. Um, so they reinterpreted this miracle of the loaves and the fishes. So the miracle is Jesus you know, gives a sermon on a mount and it's really beautiful and then it's like, um, there's not enough food and here he's got a few loaves and a few fishes and he miraculously makes enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. and, and that means Jesus is God and he's can, you know, can do all these miracles. He can walk on water. He can do all this stuff. So the one way to look at it is what actually happened is he was just a guy and he gave an incredible sermon about sharing and how we're all <laughs> together and everybody just shared and yeah. that's the real miracle. Yeah. <laughs> And that it's also, it's what each of us should be doing. You know, we're all called to uh, action. Yeah. You know, whereas if it's a miracle, the, the, I can't multiply all those loaves and fishes. Right. You know? But right. I, I could maybe be a little bit less selfish. Yeah. The miracle so, is getting people to share and get along. Yeah. yeah. And th then you get hierarchies in churches and th that, that simple thing gets lost. And now it turns into this magic story. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> um, Rick, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate yeah. you. Uh, did, did you have anything for me? Well, I did. I, I mean, we've talked for a long time. I mean, are yeah, you going to edit this? I'm <laughs> so sorry. Or, I no, don't. no, no. This is great. It's okay, been super okay. fun. And okay, I think cool. it really speaks to the uh, value sometimes of uh, getting high before you do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. It really does. But I, 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 I mean, I wasn't planning on uh, it, but uh, I think uh, it's <laughs> added to the flow. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really like editing much, so we'll see. I, I hope you, yeah. I mean, I don't feel like I said anything that I shouldn't have said. No, I think I, you're great. I mean, a lot and of times you don't know that. <laughs> you won't get in trouble for it. I will. So, no, I, I'm going to keep everything in. Um, and then we're going to go do a whole bottle of acid right now together, and it's going to be a wonderful time. And <laughs> Uh, yeah, that would be overdoing it a bit. That would be overdoing that, that would it. That'd be a wasteful. Bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we we <laughs> should give it to the politicians, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We should, we could dose the with White MDMA, House but but but, yeah. but I think that that would be too much. So I do think the uh, MDMA LSD combination um, is good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, brother, for giving us your time, giving yeah. the world your love. Appreciate you very much. It's and, been a pleasure. Uh, stoked to hang. We could do it yeah. again another time because yeah. there's going to be way more to come yeah i mean maybe at the conference even we yeah do something that'd be awesome yeah see everybody and that's it i hope you guys enjoyed this episode check out rick doblin's ted talk online you can just type that into youtube it'll pop right up and check out all the work that maps does and support them any way you can maps.org is the website Check back for new episodes here every week. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Check us out on Instagram at 
Good Trip Podcast. Uh, or you can check me out on Instagram at Brent Pella. I repost clips there all the time. And have a wonderful week, everybody. Love you so much. Peace. Peace.